Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. This is the podcast in which we do lists. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Mm, I'm pretty. Thou call me, callest me Whitney Seibold. Oh no, I won't do that. Uh, let's, name, let's not, shall uh, we? Let's, let's. My name is My name is Whitney Seibold. Yeah. I, I be a long a, podcast anyway. I am a film critic. <laughs> I don't have a cute nickname, and I'm a Shakespeare nerd. Uh, every month here in the Iron List, our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network get to decide on one gigantic top ten list that Whitney and I will do. We each do our own top ten. We share them. We discuss them in great detail. Uh, and it's about whatever topic our patrons request. And this month, bless them, they picked the best William Shakespeare adaptations. Whitney is a huge Shakespeare nerd. <laughs> I am a, I'm a Shakespeare nerd, but not to the level that Whitney is. There's still oh, several yeah. plays that I've never read or seen produced. And mm-hmm. um, Sorry, King John. Look, King John is... Actually, kind of a forgettable play. Yeah, um, they're, they're not all winners, are they? No, but I, I did do a deep dive into Shakespeare once. I read all of his plays. I've seen all of the BBC productions. Wow. I listened to all of the Archangel audio productions. Nice. Uh, I, I even went and sought out things like The Two Noble Kinsmen and Cardinio, some of those apocryphal plays that he only co-authored or is only rumored to have authored. Mm. Uh, yeah, I I really, really kind of lost my head for Shakespeare there for a bit in my 20s. Well, Shakespeare is a wonderful author, mm. as you may have heard. Uh, Shakespeare uh, uh, wrote just a, a whole truckload of plays in rapid succession, mm. many of which have become timeless classics, many of which have been adapted dozens upon dozens of times, been uh, used as the basis for non-Shakespearean films that just copy the character's plot, sometimes the dialogue, but usually not. Mm. Um, and also a lot of stuff that has rarely, if ever, been adapted to the, the uh, theatrical uh, screen. I don't know if Whitney chose any TV movies. I don't think I did. Um, uh, I did not. I chose mostly theatrical yeah. film releases. I think, yeah, it looks uh, like I did too, yeah. Okay. Uh, Sh- Shakespeare is both really well suited for screen and also not at all well suited for screen. Yeah. Uh, because he wrote plays in, in the late 16th, early 17th century. And, and these were, and these were long winded uh, plays that had a clear structure, but they weren't often the three act structure well, that were, we are so committed to. They five were five act structure. Well, uh, that's my point is movies tend to be very like forthright and directional. They sort of truck along from one plot point to another. And many of Shakespeare's plays, not all, but uh, the majority that I've read are, can get a little meandering in the middle. They have a lot of long asides, soliloquies, random characters come in to do a bit of comedy, even in a serious film, and that's a scene that most people would cut out of a movie. Uh, It's actually incredibly rare for any motion picture adaptation of Shakespeare to leave the whole play in. Many end up moving scenes and dialogue around for purposes that may be well-advised or may be ill-advised, depending on how the movie actually turns out. Um, Shakespeare plays have been adapted to... You know, look like they were performed when they were actually performed originally, but throughout the centuries, the plays have been adapted mm. to fit modern times. Uh, prior, uh, uh, I almost said administrations, prior <laughs> historical eras, <laughs> prior historical eras to, to reflect what's going on uh, in contemporary political climates, to reflect on different eras of uh, Earth's past. Earth's past? What? <laughs> Human past. Uh, and also the future, which is mm. kind of fun. So uh, they're very malleable. 
they the actual like nuts and bolts of his best plays are extremely um um solid mm. like you can leave the story in place and you'll have a great story even if you change everything yeah, else. Now, um the stories were always really fascinating of mm. course his stories were heavily borrowed uh, yeah. it, it, even a, a shallow dive into shakespeare will reveal that he was just borrowing influences from everywhere mm-hmm. uh, like commedia dell'arte and ancient greek theater he's clearly a, a really well-read author yeah I mean, this would be like uh, imagine if like piranha was a better movie than jaws that's shakespeare for you <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and in fact uh, when we get into hamlet as i'm sure we're going to you'll see that a lot of what hamlet is talking about is riffing on what's expected of him in uh the genre he lives in yeah. which is an ancient greek tradition of uh revenge tragedies that was actually really popular in shakespeare's time uh so even those stories are really really contrived he did sort of masterfully present at least his better plays uh, uh the sort of the idealized version of them and even if you take the stories out because in a lot of his plays the stories do kind of meander some of them are really backloaded some of them all the good stuff happens up front you still have uh some pretty rich characters because they're always talking about themselves we get a good deep look into their souls and even if you don't have the characters, you still get lost in the beauty of the language and the poetry. Yeah. Uh, which I feel like is something that is really missing from a lot of uh, modern films. And I think it's something that a lot of filmmakers and screenwriters are afraid to do. Mm. To have really talky movies where people just sort of prattle on and on and on. Uh, as such, I think a lot of uh, filmmakers, at least in recent years, tend to skew away from Shakespeare. I haven't seen a lot of Shakespeare adaptations in the last decade. I was thinking about this mm. when I was putting together, like, because I, you know, what we do, what I do mm. uh, when we have these iron lists is my first thing I, th- my first thing I do is what do I remember off the top of my head? Because yeah. usually that's the stuff I'm passionate about or has made an impact on me and it's almost guaranteed to end up on the list. But usually that tops out at around six or seven movies, and then I start digging around, making sure I'm not forgetting anything, and then also making sure there isn't anything significant that I have missed. And when I was doing my list, I realized not a lot of super recent films on my list. In fact, there's only one film on my list that's even from this century. Hmm. And I was wondering, did I miss something? Because, yeah, I haven't seen every Shakespeare adaptation. Who has? There's literally... The hundreds upon hundreds of just Hamlet alone. Like, but I feel like there's surely, because there's always a, people adapting Shakespeare, there's been like one great Shakespeare movie of the last 10 years. And my answer to that after doing some research is kind of? There's, there's, there's like there's one. A, there's there's one, one, one great Shakespeare movie one I think really, in the last uh, 10 years. One really notable one. Um, and then a bunch just, of. Eh. I'll just get it out of the way. I, I recently, just like a couple of weeks ago, reviewed a Measure for Measure adaptation, yeah. which was okay. And it wasn't Shakespeare's language. It was just sort of the story. Yeah. So it didn't read quite as well as a Shakespearean thing. And it was also modern day. So right. why call it Measure for Measure? Just yeah. do the Measure for Measure story. Uh, I'll say it right away because it's probably not on either of our lists. Mm-hmm. That uh, Michael Fassbender version of Macbeth was <gasps> abysmal. Yes. <laughs> it's Thank you. so bad. It's beautifully filmed. We can agree on that. The photography is uh, yeah. really good. It looks like Mandy. Like, just everything's yeah. really washed out in, in these rich colors. The way yeah. that they film the battle sequence at the end is really gorgeous. Mm. I'm not faulting the cinematographer 
at all. And in fact, I also think Marion Cotillard actually gives a very good performance in that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, that movie is weirdly one note and dreary. It's and, it's one note, it's dreary, and they cut out a lot of the dialogue. Yeah. It's just all of the somberness from Macbeth and none of the playfulness and insight and the actual variations in the characters mm-hmm. and their thought process. This is something that I think is often sort of is the line between a good Shakespeare adaptation and a bad Shakespeare adaptation. I don't mean great. Great mm. takes a lot more than this. But a bad Shakespeare adaptation, if they keep the original language, you can tell that the people saying the language have only gotten the gist of it. Mm. And the good ones, even if the dialogue or the metaphors or the wordplay or the historical references might go a little over your head without some Cliff's notes, you understand everything that they're saying. You understand why that they're saying it. Mm. You understand what's funny, why it's funny. You understand that these are people thinking out loud. And uh, this is one of the reasons why I think Kenneth Branagh was such a good Shakespeare director for most of his career. Mm. Is because him and his crew, when they spoke Shakespeare, they spoke it like it was natural. And yeah, even, if you, even if you're not picking... It's, it's almost like you're listening to people use slang that you don't know. You understand everything that they're saying, you understand the gist of it, but you couldn't figure out why that means the way it does. And that's something that I think is, Mm. the new Macbeth really didn't do. Just kind of whiffs. Most people are just being serious and then get to the end of the monologue. People don't really understand how how alive and immediate Shakespeare really is. I think Branagh does. I think when he directs uh, Mm. his Shakespeare adaptations, he he lets his actors use their their native accents. True. For one. Except he himself. Like, he he tends to sound (laughs) a little bit more British, even though he's Irish. Yeah. Um... Uh, I, I, the, I think it's I think it's slightly mocking, maybe a little bit. Maybe yeah. it's kind of making fun well, of I mean, like the the British. In uh, Henry the Fifth, he's playing Henry the Fifth, so yeah. that makes sense. Uh, yeah. Hamlet didn't he's, have to be British. He's playing a Dane. Why does he sound <laughs> like a Brit? But yeah, yeah. No, no, whatever. Um, but yeah, but he also like cast Americans, and they just speak in American, yeah. and I'm, that's yeah. I'm like, sure at least one Branna movie is going to end up on one of our lists. Uh, at least one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the one Iron List that I think that we've done that, based on just what I know of Whitney Seibold mm. and myself, I'm actually reasonably sure there's going to be more overlap than usual. Usually we have like two or three, uh-huh. but our lists are very different. I would venture to say I, I'm predicting at least five. <laughs> Probably I'm yeah. five overlaps so, um, on list. Shakespeare wrote four kinds of plays: mm. comedies, tragedies, histories, and what is called often called romances. Sometimes called problem plays, and that they don't really have a solid genre. Yeah, uh, stuff like The Tempest and The Winter's Tale, where there's a lot of tragic stuff in them, but they end with a marriage. Or mm-hmm. there's comic stuff throughout, but you can't you really know figure what? it out. Dramedy, Dra- <laughs> sure. Because yeah, because a tragedy mm. is basically tragic. Shakespeare's tragic plays have a lot of humor in them. Mm. They do. So it all depends on, did almost everyone die at the end? Mm. That's tragedy. Yeah. He, uh, comedies. There's a lot of drama in them. But did nobody die at the end? Yeah, but... Comedy. The, the last couple plays of his career, he, he did... Um... Like, he had this, like, really great run, like, right in the middle of his career, right around 1600. Yeah, just hit and then, after yeah, hit Just after all hit. these really big, huge, the ones that are still taught in like high schools the, today. The, like the Ryan Coogler of his age. Just, like, Fruitvale <laughs> Station, Creed, yeah. then Black Panther. Oh, my God, he's on fire. So, yeah. Uh, Much Ado, Henry V, Julius Caesar, As You Like It, Twelfth Night, Hamlet, Merry Wives of Windsor. Okay, maybe not Trailers and Cressida. Uh, <laughs> 
Then you have three kind of middling comedies. Yeah. Uh, Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, Antony, and Cleopatra. Like, all in a... like a, That's yeah. a run. Those were not the middling comedies. Those no. Were, those were classic. No, Trillis yeah. and Cressid, All is Well, and Ends Well, and Measure for Measure are not as celebrated. Yeah, they're fine. But then right at the end of his career, he did, uh, like, Pericles, Prince of Tyre, which nobody ever performs. Now, Cymbeline, now. which is performed even less. Yeah. Uh, and The Winter's Tale, The Tempest, and Henry VIII, mm. which... Uh, Henry VIII isn't, like, really never, well quoted. Henry VIII I've never actually read or seen. Uh, Henry VIII was, like, just po- politics on Shakespeare. Look up the yeah. the history, like, he's writing it for, for James, and uh, King, mm-hmm. that is King James. Uh, and, uh, Playing to his audience. Yeah, pretty much. He's, yeah. he's just sort of bolstering the, the lineage of yeah. the current king. Uh, so yeah, at the very end, he's, he was writing these plays that didn't really fit into genres very neatly. Uh, how about we do our list in that? In that order? It, it, it just through genre by genre. And save our number one for last. Uh, I haven't... Okay, I actually need to redo all of this. Um, okay. Well, uh, oh, okay. Oh, sorry. sorry. We're trying to keep it a secret. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> if you don't want to do it, it's fine. Well, it's was Ju- would Julius idea. Caesar count as a history play Ju- or a tragedy? Like, Julius Caesar, history, right? uh, that's a history. Because sure. typically I think a lot of his histories are considered like British history. The, the, okay, like, you can count it as a tragedy. Like, that's fine. To- yeah. Okay, like for example. Mm. Um, I'm just trying to get a baseline. Mm. Um, you know what? Mm. Let's just fucking not. Okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> well, I'll start the list then. And Please. I'll, and I'll start with a history play. Go for it. Because his history plays uh, are the ones most hated by students. <laughs> Even though they have some really rich uh, historical figures mm. as reinterpreted by Shakespeare. Yeah, there's uh, a historical Richard, Richard accuracy III, was yeah. not his biggest concern. Oh, golly, no. no um, he was trying to make, he was rewriting history to make political points yeah. about his era. Mm. Yeah, uh, and so so which, which the, means I think that if you change like Shakespeare to reflect your era, uh, totally fair game. Shakespeare did that because that's too. what he did. Yeah, uh, yeah it's so, totally fine. So Richard the Third was not the the monster that he was depicted in those mm. plays, uh, yeah. but at least not that monster. Yeah. Pardon? At least not that monster. No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't the. Yeah. <laughs> that's not who he was. He was a little different. He was, he yeah. was a little different. Okay. Um, so what's your what's your film? Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Lawrence Olivier's Henry the Henry the Fifth. Oh, that's on my list too. Okay, so good. we're already um, off to a good start. Uh, when Branagh remade Henry V, he stole from Olivier hand over fist. <laughs> because the, uh, the idea with Olivier's production of Henry V is, uh, and indeed this is written into the fabric of the play, there's a narrator who appears on stage from the modern day. Yeah. Uh, in uh, Henry V, which was written in 1598 uh, 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 u
discourages filmmakers from exploring the dialogue and the poetry. Yeah. Because now they can just show rather than tell. Yeah. And the whole point of Shakespeare is he's telling. Yeah. This is the, the expression show don't tell is something that is hammered into every film student. Mm. And it's, and, and it's, it's first year advice. It's only encouraging you to think visually. Yeah. And that's it. It's not, it's not the end all be all showing is not always better than telling. Mm. They often bolster each other. And sometimes telling is better. A good monologue can be more effective mm. than a pretty shot because the monologue can reveal more than the cinematography if you're doing yeah. it right. So, when, so cutting out a ton of Shakespeare dialogue, then just instead just showing a battle, hmm. isn't necessarily fixing the play. You might actually be ruining it. Because <laughs> you're, you're cutting out great speeches and descriptions and how yeah. people feel after the fact. Uh, yeah, uh, in order to sort of reconcile uh, cinematic grandeur with uh, sort of what the Globe Theater had to work with back in the late 1590s, Olivier decided to do both. Mm-hmm. He set it as uh, a production of Henry V at the Globe in the 1590s, mm-hmm. uh, and he filmed that. And there was groundlings uh, yeah. making noise and people sitting in the seats. The camera moves backstage, yeah. and you can see you Olivier see people, getting yeah. into costume and getting ready to go outside. Yeah, people are, are putting their costumes on and just sort of uh, bickering. There's a lot of like little fun backstage dramas yeah. going on. The audience is heckling them. And, uh, and there comes a point where... Uh, the audience starts to calm down. They're a little less present through these opening scenes until there's just a hard edit and they're just outside on horses. Yeah. So all of a sudden we've been like gently lowered into this warm bath of Shakespeare into cinema. And now we have Shakespeare and cinema coexisting. And I think it's a really brilliant uh, way to put it forward. And and contextually it's really significant Mm. because at the time Shakespeare was considered box office poison. There had been a lot of Shakespeare adaptations, some very good, mm-hmm. some very bad. Cough, Romeo and Juliet from the late 1930s. <laughs> oh, golly, that's so bad. It's a terrible adaptation. It's so awful. It was uh, was Nor- it George Cukor who did that one? Or is it, uh, uh, it, was Q- it was Norma Shearer and uh, Tom Hiddleston looking dude. Um, <laughs> Leslie Howard? Leslie Howard. Yeah, Leslie- they were yeah. way too old for it. <laughs> it's like it- they're like, twice, like three times Romeo and Juliet's age. It's ridiculous. I, I, I love Leslie Howard and I really love Norma Shearer, but they are not good in that. They're right, just right? miscast. Yeah. They're dramatically miscast. Uh, it, so, and that actually is one of the movies that got people thinking that no one wants to see Shakespeare in theaters. And I think Olivier did two really brilliant things besides the acting and just directing because he's amazing in this movie. Um, one was he actually walked the audience into how to watch a Shakespeare movie. We yeah. understand that this is a play, that this is theatrical. However, once you get invested in it, then it's like, wow, I can almost see it. Oh, I actually am seeing it. Mm. Oh, this is a movie now. And then he gradually (laughs) scales it back towards the end, and it's a very effective production. The other thing was, this movie was made in the early 1940s in Britain, and a lot was going on at the time. It was uh, 45, mid-40s. No, 44 is what I had. Oh, no. But in any case, it it was made around the time of World War II. Yes. And it was actually, it was a very political choice. He actually focused... On the pro-England stuff. Mm. Not the stuff that Shakespeare put in that actually made Henry, like, not that much of a good guy. Like, actually a a more complicated character with, like, richer shadings. That's not to say that he took all the shadings out. Mm. But this is a very pro-England movie. This is a movie that is not just uh, pro-England via isn't Shakespeare great, but is actually pro-England as uh, we're gonna win this war overseas. Yeah, Yeah. And... 
on that level, it's a very effective propaganda film because it's not, I mean, Shakespeare is conducive to that, but he's not just doing that. He's actually creating a really beautifully filmed, wonderfully acted, exciting story. If you're not familiar with the story of Henry V, uh, Henry V was this king. And uh, he was, there, was a, there was a war with France, and he was just like, I don't know, I feel like I own France. And France was like, no. And he's like, kind of do? And they're like, no. And then they fought over it. <laughs> and that was the whole fucking thing. Um, it's crazy. Henry V is actually the fourth part in a tetrad of plays. Yeah. Uh, same with Richard III. People uh, often don't acknowledge... Well, Richard II, I think, it's yeah, a little play. But... R- Richard II was the first part, yeah. and uh, Richard II was... Uh, I actually really like Richard II. Mm. It's about how he's sort of unfairly ousted by Henry IV. Mm. And uh, Henry the Fourth Part's one. Henry the Fourth Part Two is kind of a remake of Part One. Like it's a lot of the same beats. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Henry the Fourth Part One introduced this whole relationship between uh, Henry the Fourth's son, Prince Hal, and one of fiction's great creations, Falstaff. Mm. And it's a, kind of about how. Uh, Prince Hal is actually kind of manipulating his own image so that people don't expect a lot from him when he finally takes the crown. So when he takes the crown, he can blow everybody away because he's actually a really good uh, politician and a really good uh, leader of the troops. Right. By the time we get to Henry V, it's still exhilarating to watch. But if you realize that it's sort of like the culmination of Prince Hal's arc over the course of these four plays, well, three plays, Hal's not in Richard II... Yeah. Uh, it, it makes the character a lot more rich and interesting. Yeah, it, it's, as I said, it's kind of like laser focused on the things that mm. uh, Olivier thought would play well. Yeah, yeah, And indeed they do, and it's a brilliant production. And uh, we did a whole podcast about this a few years ago. I think it was part of the For, two shot. Fairly recently, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, so if you can track that down, that episode, if you want to mm. hear us talk about it at much great length, but we should move on. Mm. Um, well, that's actually a good segue to uh, a, a, a movie adaptation of a play I hadn't been familiar with okay. until I saw the film. Like, I knew of it, but I'd never read it. I'd never watched it. And mm. then I saw this movie, and it's one of only two, as near as I can tell, adaptations of this play. Okay. Uh, and it is Ray Fiennes' Coriolanus from 2012. Oh, that's Yeah, that's on my list, too. Is it as well? Yeah. Okay. See, I knew there'd be a lot. Yeah, we're going to okay. do a lot, lot of overlap here. That's fine. But you know what? These are good movies. Uh, so uh, Coriolanus is the story of a Roman emperor. And if you're familiar with well, Roman it's, history... It's about a Roman general. Well, he becomes, yeah. an, well, here's, he becomes here's, a sen- like a senator. Yeah. Um, did he only become a senator? I thought he became an emperor. Anyway, my point mm. is this. Uh, in ancient Rome... Uh, they never actually got the whole line of succession thing down. So what often happened was when <laughs> watch, someone watch, watch I Claudius at some point, or, yeah. or watch Julius Caesar. Like you know, it's just when people were, were in leadership positions, everyone just sort of scrambled to fill it. There was no like we're going to have an election or mm. we're going to have a meeting. It's or like it's, or it's your heir. Yeah, yeah it's not it's, none of that. It's it's basically a lot of the time when, when like an emperor died in ancient mm. Rome, no matter how good they were as an emperor no matter how stable the empire was a whole bunch of generals just fought over it and then whoever was the toughest won mm-hmm. and uh being the toughest general is not necessarily a good qualification to lead a country it, and that makes you a very bad politician it turns out yeah and that's exactly what Coriolanus is about Ray Fiennes plays Coriolanus uh an incredible warrior 
an incredible leader of soldiers, but when he's actually put on the national stage as a politician outside of war, he's a mess. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely terrible. People and conspire against him. They oust him completely, and he ends up siding with his... Uh, his uh, old, ri old his, rival. His, his old, old rival, enemy, yeah. and, and basically taking on Rome. And it is a story about... Uh, uh, the failure of politics. It's a story about the failure of war. It's a story about the failure of basically uh, uh, anyone with hubris attempting to lead. Yeah, and it's a really, really wonderful story. And Ray Fiennes very smartly uh, adapts this as a story of basically the, the Iraq War, the yeah. Iraq War, where here's a here's a soldier in the Iraq War, and he. Uh, did a lot of impressive battle things, and when he came back, everyone's just like, oh, you should run for politics! And he's just like, eh. Yeah. And then it goes really, really, really yeah. bad. And it contemporizes wonderfully, because a lot of the issues in terms of what makes a good leader, what makes a person a good civil servant versus what makes someone a good killer, uh, you know, that's relevant. And that mm -hmm. will always probably be relevant mm -hmm. as long as war remains inextricably linked to politics. Um. Near the end of his career, and I don't know what, what was going on in his life personally, uh, Shakespeare wrote a couple of plays about revenge out of spite. Mm. Not like the classical Hamlet sort of revenge, like mm. kill the person who killed your father. Like, I have legitimately uh, been wronged, it was, even if revenge is bad. Yeah. It was about how someone was wronged so badly that they devoted their life to destroying an empire. Yeah. Because that's also um, uh, Timon of Athens. Okay. Or, or excuse me, uh, not time of. Um, okay. I yeah, time. It's uh, yeah. Coriolanus and Timon of Athens are right next to each other. Yeah. Uh, that's a big part of the Tempest. Yeah. It's Prospero. Yeah. Very uh, better. It, it's um, it's a big part of the Winter's Tale as well. Mm. Even though that movie, like the second half of that movie, is just like a straight up comedy, which is really weird. Yeah. Like the first half is this revenge. My, like my wife might be cheating on me, kind of revenge story, <laughs> and then a guy gets eaten by a bear right in the middle of the play. <laughs> And then the rest is like this lighthearted <laughs> comedy that takes place 16 years later. It's like it's so weird. Shakespeare did a lot of drugs. <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> this is no way he was, he was dipping into. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so uh, he, he did a lot of plays about uh, like spite and taking down empires right near, near the end of the, his career. Yeah. And Coriolanus is definitely a piece with that. This modern version, I think, allows the violence of Shakespeare's plays to come alive. Yeah. It's hard to imagine ancient battle without ma making it seem like some sort of, like, genre flash, like an ancient battle sequence. Yeah, you imagine, uh, like, you know, people clanging swords yeah, and bashing shields. And but setting it in modern wartime, it's actually yeah. highlighting the fact that uh, the warfare is very immediate yeah. and it's very relevant. And, and Ray Fiennes, who mm. is... Not known as for being a director, I think this is his directorial debut as a, in in film at least, uh, is really quite excellent at this. He mm. he had this period of time, I think, in the nineties when he was considered one of the better actors of his generation, and then in the last twenty years or so, he hasn't had as many juicy movie roles. Mm. Like he's had a couple of big like like Voldemort and stuff, so people know him, but like he wasn't getting like the Schindler's List roles. Mm. For a while there, and Did you I ever see Sunshine. I heard Sunshine was really good. Yeah, he plays three. He plays three different roles in that. Yeah, one. he's an excellent actor. My mm. point is this: I feel like it's been a while since he's had a role that really showed off in film. Just how amazing he is. He's done a lot of theater. Mm. Um, they did um, a recent production of Antony and Cleopatra Ooh. with uh, him and I think Sophia Canedo. 
Okay. Uh, that was actually, and that's actually like on YouTube. Like they nice. released that for like when, oh, when COVID this, hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's really we, nice. Um, we, we, my wife and I have watched a couple of those from yeah. the, the National Theater Company. Yeah, Michelle and I watched uh, the Anthony and Cleopatra they did, and it was really good. Mm. Um, I, I watched the uh, the Twelfth Night they did, and it was kind of bad. Oh no, yeah. that's too bad. Well, they can't all be winners, can they? But I think he understands. He gets great performances out of everybody in this film, but he's actually a very savvy sort of action filmmaker in this thing. Mm-hmm. And actually, and and I think Ray Fiennes deserves the utmost credit for this, if nothing else. He may be the only director <laughs> to get a legitimately say. capital G great performance out of Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler plays the rival character. Yeah. Uh, like, I can't remember the name yeah, of the character. Like, Cassio or something. Yeah. Um, or Cassius. Uh, Cassius from Othello. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, Cassius Sells from Julius Caesar. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I forgot to say that. The two jerks. But anyway, yeah, Gerard Butler plays plays Corey Lannis' rival. Plays the rival character. And yeah, they actually have a lot of really good moments. I've, I've seen a rendition of Coriolanus that implied that they were sexually attracted to one another. I might. Um, in the late seventies and early eighties, the BBC, uh, did filmed versions of all of Shakespeare's plays. Mm. Uh, not just the popular ones. And yeah. so there is at least one filmed version of every one of his plays. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if, if you but want... sometimes that's the only one. Yeah. There's <laughs> a few. If you want, it, like, a, a really good, full, rousing edition of, like, King Henry VI Part Three, there's where you go. <laughs> um, uh, but, but the, uh, yeah, yeah. They, the version... Of that, their version of Coriolanus kind of stunk because oh, they, they tried to make it, like... The, the director was better known for operas and he tried to make all of the scene, all of the shots uh, look like famous paintings and cute. As, and uh, which is yeah kind of a cute idea but it like pulls everything yeah. back and the lighting really sucks and he's just trying yeah. to make it be more moody than focusing on the dialogue yeah so uh it was just a really bad rendition of Coriolanus and I'm f- glad yeah. we finally got a good Coriolanus this is a truly excellent film and yeah. it's a, it got mostly overlooked which is a damn shame mm-hmm. Uh, but seek this one out if you missed it. Mm-hmm. It's great. Even if you're unfamiliar with the play, Ray Fiennes really makes it work. And, and, and by the way, when I said what I said about Gerard Butler, mm-hmm. I'm not speaking ill of Gerard Butler, but let's be honest here. He hasn't been in a lot of great movies, and he hasn't had a lot of opportunity to be great in them, mm-hmm. and this is clearly, for me, his finest hour as an mm-hmm. actor. Like uh, I remember Gerard Butler was on like the Jimmy Kimmel Mean Tweets segment once, uh-huh. and, uh, and the mean tweet was... Does Gerard Butler have student loans or something? <laughs> is, that what, is that why he's doing all these shit films? And he looked at the camera and he says, No, I just do shit films. <laughs> so he's got a sense of humor. He no, knows I, he knows what he's doing. I have a lot of affection yeah. for Gerard Butler. I've liked a lot of movies that he's been in. Yeah. Even the silly ones like Geostorm for me is a modern <laughs> classic. It's great. Geostorm it's so is, much fun. Is like it's bad, but it it's knows enjoyable. what it is, yeah. which I appreciate. So uh, but anyway, let's move on. What's your number? Uh, what, I guess we're, uh, we're both two down. What's your number eight? Let's see here. What do I want to talk about next? Because there's so many good ones. You know what? I'll, I'll stick with the Henry V theme. Okay. And go with Orson Welles' Chimes at Midnight. That's another overlap. <laughs> of course it is. That was almost um, my number one. Chimes at Midnight uh, isn't a straight adaptation of uh, Shakespeare. It's sort of like a, an amalgam of Henry IV parts one, one and two and the Merry Wives of Windsor, the three plays that had Falstaff in them. Well, here's the thing. Orson Welles mm. actually directed a lot of Shakespeare adaptations, some better than others. Mm. Um, I would say his other best Shakespeare plays probably Macbeth. 
His Macbeth mm. is very good, but... Uh, I gotta be honest, I'm not so fond of Orson Welles' Shakespeare adaptations. I really, I, think, I genuinely don't think his Othello is good. His Othello is not good. Yeah. Uh, his, I know there are issues with the production that made that so, but we just gotta take what we get. His Macbeth uh, is a little... Uh, this is a horrible thing to say about a film. It It's like he can't find the balance between cinema and staginess. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a result... It, looks cheap like he's trying to cut corners <laughs> which is weird it's I, like, I, like, uh, I kind of like it it feels like an early German expressionist kind of thing where he's making the most out of minimalism I, I suppose so I like but it. I, it didn't make my list but I like it I feel like Olivier's Hamlet does a lot more with that minimalist style I agree and that uh, also didn't make my which list which is but... kind of like Elsinore Castle's just this weird maze of a set where yeah. you know, like there's not really a central location in that mm-hmm. version it's, which it's I a think gorgeous looking film works in its favor uh, it's not my favorite yeah. Hamlet by any stretch but mm-hmm. um, but Orson Welles did a lot of Shakespeare on Broadway in mm-hmm. fact that's one of the things he became famous for was doing these really exciting versions of Shakespeare that no one had ever done before he did and I think this is correct I believe he directed the first Shakespeare play on Broadway with an all black cast yeah he did a version of Macbeth with mm-hmm. an all black cast he did um, a version of Julius Caesar that was set in fascist contemporary Italy mm. Uh, got, in, which, got in a lot of trouble for that one. I, I did, and apparently it was like really impressive. Like they, what I read about it, like the production design was all done with light, mm. nothing else, just light and shadow, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which sounds amazing. Like so, he was really daring, and he was really trying to experiment with the Bard. And when he made his Shakespeare movies, at some point he just got the came to the realization that there's a secret Shakespeare play. He already wrote it, but it's cut up into pieces of other plays. And what he did was he took the character of Falstaff, who is probably best known for his roles in the Henry V plays as Henry V's like best friend, Mm -hmm. drunken, oaf, coward, wonderful character. Um, And he's like, okay, this character appears in like five different plays. Well, just, just the three, but yeah. No, then they have also in like Mary Wise of Windsor as well. Yeah. Henry the fourth parts one and two. He dies at the start of Henry V. Well, that scene's included. He's, and, but, yeah. but he's not on stage but the at some point. Yeah. Like, and, yeah, and then, Mary, and then Mary Wise of Windsor is like the star character. Okay, so I was counting Henry V. But fine, right. let's uh, three plays. But like, if I take all the Falstaff scenes from these plays, mm-hmm. Falstaff has a complete arc. Yeah. I just have a new Shakespeare play about Falstaff, and that's what Times at Midnight is. Mm, and that's fucking brilliant. <laughs> that's so smart. And it works great. Yeah, he, he made this in the 60s uh, when his uh, film career was considered a joke by the Hollywood uh, elites, I suppose. Yeah. And, At least uh, his contemporary career, yeah. Uh, and this was, it was a brilliant turn. He played Falstaff, and Falstaff... Uh, is celebrated by critics all over the world as like one of the premier creations of all fiction. Yeah. Uh, this idea, the idea that there's this drunken buffoon who believes in just drinking and hedonism and lying and glory is always having a good time mm-hmm. is ruining other people's lives and doesn't care and who is a complete and utter coward. He has no redeemable qualities, and yet you love him yeah. for how much he believes in himself. And how honest he is about himself. He doesn't pretend yeah. to be things that he is not, but he always has a reason hmm. for them. And yeah, he will explain them to you in wonderful conversation. And you can have a really, really great time with him. But at some point, you have to realize he is toxic and I need to move on. Hmm. Uh, yeah. and, and that's the story of Mary the Fifth. That's the story. And yeah. And, <laughs> 
and Henry uh, the Fourth ends up, you right. know, when Falstaff is there at his his, uh, his I said his inauguration, his yeah. coronation. Yeah, uh, and. He walks past and, you know, Falstaff is there, you know, big and drunk and old. Like, hey, how you doing? Remember me? What are we going to do now that you're king? And he just looks him in the eye and says, I know thee not, old man. Just completely betrays him. Yeah. And Falstaff has like this moment of melancholy that you know is the thing that's going to kill him. But he just says, I forget it. Let's go get drunk. Like, like... (laughs) Like it, 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 he's he like is he's, who he is. he's dismissing it, but he yeah he has no other recourse yeah. and really. He, and he's yeah. hurt, of course he's hurt. But what am I? What else can I do? Um, I'll get drunk again. I'm kind of surprised there haven't been more Falstaff movies. Mm-hmm. So here we go. Here's the Falstaff movie. Uh, there was my own private Idaho. That's Which an adaptation is, yep. of of the Henry the Fourth plays. Uh, was it Keanu Reeves plays the Falstaff version of that right? No, Keanu Reeves plays the Hal version. Oh, I was thinking Hal, of that. And, and I forgot the actor I for, the, I mixed the Falstaff up. character. I got mixed him up. I remember it being and, River and, Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. I remember yeah, River, Phoenix, I, River I Phoenix, Phoenix is while, sort of like, like, sort of like uh, Hal's consci- conscience in that movie. He's, like, okay. I don't think he has a direct Shakespearean It's analog. been a really long time since I saw that movie. It, it's good. Uh, I, I remember it being mm-hmm. good. I just, the details seem to be yeah. fading, and you guess you need to rewatch it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, that's uh, an adaptation of, of Henry IV. Uh, yeah, but Chimes at Midnight, uh, brilliant. I think he really delves into the melancholy of the character. I think he understands the foolishness of the character. He's not afraid to make an ass of himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that is Orson Welles. Uh, oh, yeah, he's in, in very service silly. of this art. Yeah. He's very, very silly in this movie, and it's really, really great. One thing I love about this movie, and again, in the 1960s, Orson Welles could not get things made. Yeah. And a lot of his movies, some of some, even some of his better remembered films of the era, a real slapdash and like he would film bits of it and like, bits of a scene in one country mm-hmm. and then months later he'd film the other half in another country and god i hope they edit together and sometimes it doesn't work but chimes at midnight is very complete and it's actually impressively epic the actual battle sequences mm-hmm. are like really handsome and grand in scale and yeah i think I, 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 well, no, actually, I was almost going to say this is his last, like, truly great movie, but A, F for fake is amazing, and B, we have the other side of the wind now, and that movie is also great, but <laughs> Chimes of Midnight was unavailable in America for a really long time, and then about, like, five years ago or so, they finally got, like, a proper nice yeah. release, and you can get on home video now, and well, please through, through see the it, cri- so Through the Criterion Collection, no yeah. less. Um, so I, please, please see this movie. I remember so it, it came out, like, in, like, two movie theaters here in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like, it wasn't widely distributed, but it was given a very small theatrical release. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think, released the first weekend in January. Mm-hmm. It was like, this is not going to move ships. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to launch a thousand ships. <laughs> and uh, there was a brief period where it was the highest grossing film of the year. <laughs> and, <laughs> I forgot about that. And, and I was very, it was like, just, it's going to be like three or four days when this is the highest grossing <laughs> film of the year. So let's just savor it. The Chimes at Midnight is like the number one movie in America. Nice. Um, all right, let's move on. Um, so that was, okay, well, you did Chimes at Midnight. Yeah. How about you pick one? You know, it's I'm also gonna, on both of our lists. I, I don't know if it is. Uh, I'm going to, okay, so Shakespeare adaptations, they don't, all of the films that we've picked so far are Shakespeare adaptations that use Shakespeare's original language. Yeah. Uh, I did not consider that a hard and fast rule. 
No, nor I, nor did I. And I did consider a lot of Shakespeare adaptations that did not use the original language, but in the end, only one made it onto my top ten list. Really? Okay. And that was easily the most fanciful of them all, and a really, really wonderful sci-fi film for the 1950s. <laughs> I am, of course, referring to Forbidden Planet, an adaptation of William Shakespeare's Tempest, which, I'm just going to say it, is better than The Tempest. <laughs> We were just talking about this before the podcast. We were thinking about like all the different versions of the Tempest that we've seen. We've seen like Julie Taymor's, which is a noble misfire, and yeah, which is weird because she did it on Broadway, and I've seen clips of the Broadway show. I heard, I heard and it's it was great. Good. Yeah, this didn't work as a film. Yeah. Um, I've seen Derek Jarman's, uh, which is kind of neat, but it feels mm. like he's like it feels like Ken Russell light. Like it's not right. really. I, doing I, it's not it's not really as bold as I think it fe- it's supposed to be, but maybe mm. if I was there at the time, I would have felt like that. So I regret that I, that I haven't seen Paul Mazursky's version of the Tempest. That's just not I I rented it and I didn't get attention. time. To, uh, Paul Mazursky did a version of the Tempest set in the present day, starring John Cassavetes in the early eighties. Critics like excoriated it. Apparently, it's <laughs> awful. But uh, I really wanted to see I it. To I just, see it too, unfortunately, yeah. this is like it's it's September 29th and we promised this podcast would be out within the month so i didn't get to it in time uh but uh the tempest is a play is a really hit and miss kind of play it's kind of meanders a bit and it's got a lot of really cool ideas it's about a deposed uh king emperor duke remember what prospero was like royalty i think it was yeah, a fallen duke he was like a fallen yeah. duke and uh he was exiled to a lonely island with his daughter and with a bunch of like fairy creatures well he he, he was there with his infant daughter he'd been living there for a while and he had a book of spells so he spent his time becoming a vengeful wizard yeah this is the plot of the play. Yeah, and uh and there's a giant tempest and it brings all of his enemies to him and um You'd think something really amazing would happen, but actually it just sort of turns out fine. Like, like his enemies are lost in the woods for a lot of the play. A lot uh, of he, the play. And he has, the, yeah, these two fanciful creatures. There's uh, Ariel, uh, the, the mm. sort of wind sprite, who's sort of wafting through the air. And then there's Caliban, mm-hmm. who's grown up out of the earth. And yeah, it's like sort this of a hairy, monstrous, hairy, scary uh, creature, kind yeah. of fleshy monster. Great characters in it, good stuff in it. But as a play, it never really quite worked for me. But I think Forbidden Planet does work and i think there's a couple of reasons why forbidden planet works and i think the biggest reason is they took the very bold step of adapting shakespeare to sci-fi which i'm sure had been done by that point but Mm -hmm. this is definitely the highest profile version of it it's rare yeah um forbidden planet takes place uh in the deepest outstretches of space uh it is gorgeously technicolor photographed real bright and 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 springy and uh it's got this incredible like orchestral score and like soundscape full of like these weird like electronic noises that no one had ever made before and they still play kind of odd and it stars leslie nielsen like decades before he was known for comedies as basically captain kirk he was a leading man, then he was a heavy. Yeah, it wasn't until like the 80s that he was known for comedy. Yeah, like he was he was just a, a respectable actor, mm-hmm. you know, never quite had a huge career, but people knew who he was. He was good at it, and this is arguably his most prominent role before he went into comedy and yeah, he plays Captain Kirk basically. He's the captain of a ship uh full of uh a bunch of guys in the same outfit 
and they travel around space and they do things for the Intergalactic Federation or whatever. And in they actually end up on a forbidden planet, a planet where... Which is uh, the island from uh, the Tempest. And it has only two inhabitants, uh, a mad scientist and his very friendly young sexy daughter mm. and a robot who is uh, awesome. Uh, it, yeah, they, so we have uh, the the evil wizard who's mm-hmm. now a mad scientist. Mm-hmm. We have the the comely daughter who's kind of the same. Yeah. And now Ariel the the wood nymph or the air nymph is now a robot, Robbie the robot. Yeah, and the implication is that Robbie the robot might also be Caliban because there's a monster and we don't see it for the longest time mm. that attacks the crew at night. Yeah. The visual effects for that mo- for that monster are really cool. Like they're still to this day really neat. I mean, yeah, they're naive by modern standards, but they're done in a really interesting way. And um the production design is exciting and gigantic and it's full of really bizarre ideas about expanding the human mind to have to give mm-hmm. it like superhuman powers and the Shakespeare elements stay in there. It actually ends up feeling so much stronger in terms of its basic structure and in terms of its characters and their interactions mm-hmm. with each other than most of the sci-fi films of the era. Mm-hmm. And the fifties was not a bad decade for sci-fi. So that's that's saying something cool. Um and it's one of those films that I think because they they threw away the language, mm. they had the freedom to visualize a lot of the you know, to to we talked earlier about how sometimes visualizing Shakespeare can be a trap because you're removing the language. Mm. If you've already removed the language, you don't have that problem anymore, and you can just make it as fanciful as you want. Yeah. And Forbidden Planet is incredibly fanciful. It's very exciting. Um, if you're a little kid, it's actually a little scary. Um, oh yeah, you, that, it, that monster is horrifying. It, it yeah. was it was a mainstay in like horror movie marathons when we were kids, and nowadays it's so old that it doesn't get that kind of play. But Probably. it's still it's still really really good. It had a huge influence on Star Trek, as I oh, already yeah. hinted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a classic, and it takes a not amazing Shakespeare play. Like, it's Shakespeare. It's better than anything I'll ever do in my whole life, but compared to a lot of other Shakespeare plays, not upper echelon. I I, I don't want to dogpile on The Tempest. It's a good play. It's just a a very odd play. I don't don't think it's particularly good as a Shakespeare play. I'm I'm a critic. I'm criticizing. Um, It is better than anything I will probably ever write in my life. Shakespeare (laughs) set a high bar, and sometimes Shakespeare didn't reach it. You're saying you won't be as good as Shakespeare? I know, right? (laughs) So unreasonable. Luca is playing with your shoe. Yes, he is. (laughs) He's really adorable. He's starting to use well, his I, hands more. Like, not paws. Hands. He's, he he's like, grown, grown opposable thumbs. Like, he stole a piece of pizza, a whole piece of pizza the other day, and he grabbed it with his paws and used his paws to push it further <laughs> into his mouth, like a cartoon Aww. character with a giant plate of food. He thinks he's people. He does. I think he might be people. Anyway. Well, I, I really love Forbidden Planet as well. It's not on my list, but okay. that's that's no slight against the movie. Yeah. Um, in fact, I only have two films on my list that don't take place in, like, classical Shakespearean time. Interesting. Or at least, uh, you know, or, kind of modernized Shakespeare. So, like, uh, Corius Coriolan is one of them? Or are you considering that? I, like, guess, um, I guess there's three, if you want to. Okay. Well, why don't we, why don't we go to one yeah. of the... Did, are there okay. any films on your list that don't use Shakespearean language? Uh, yes. Why don't we do that one next? All right. Um, number one or something. Uh... Akira Kurosawa did four adaptations of Shakespeare. Did uh, Throne of Blood, which is an adaptation of Macbeth. 
He did Ron, which is an adaptation of King Lear. He did Kagemusha, which is not directly an adaptation of any of Shakespeare's histories, but it's a Shakespeare history play. Mm -hmm. It just has that kind of feel and those kind of... If Kurosawa did his own Shakespeare history play. Exactly. So I I count Kagemusha as one of his Shakespeare adaptations. And then he did a modern day Hamlet, which doesn't get a lot of press. And I wanted to bring it up on this list just so I could recommend it because I think it's great. It's called The Bad Sleep Well. And it is the Hamlet story set in modern day Japan. Uh, And uh, of course, Toshiro Mifune plays the Hamlet character. But what I appreciate about The Bad Sleep Well is that he's not in it a lot. Hmm. Um, You'll notice that, uh, and we've talked about uh, Kurosawa a lot on our various podcasts, especially recently, because we did uh, Dersu Uzala. We talked about The Hidden Fortress. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, we did um, uh, The Kidnapping One. Oh, high and low. High and low. We did high and, and low. And we talked about high and low. Yeah. So we've been talking about a, a couple of uh, Kurosawa's movies. And in a lot of them, he tends to broaden his point of view a lot. Uh, where we'll see things from the point of view of a main character, but then we'll sort of uh, expand that to have a point of view from a group of people. That's something that he did very cleverly in Ikiru. Uh I think that is a part of high and low where it's about just this one guy, but then it becomes more about sort of the broad investigation yeah. of the kidnapper. Uh, and I feel like with uh, the bad sleep, well, he kind of inverts that a little bit where it's more about the chaos that the Hamlet character is causing in court than it is about the Hamlet character. He doesn't look at the camera and says, Oh, that this two, two solid flesh would melt. He plays uh, a businessman who's kind of overlooked. He uh, he walks with a limp. Not a lot of people pay a lot of attention to him. And his father recently, quote, committed suicide by throwing himself out of building. Okay. And he is convinced that, that the other people on the board, that is the Claudius character, yeah. was responsible for it. His death was obviously a computer-generated forgery, just like in Batman Forever. Exactly. It's just like Batman Forever. Nailed it. <laughs> Kind of surprised uh, superhero films haven't gone that way. Like somebody tried to do a Shakespeare adaptation, but with like a Superman in it or something. Uh, You know, the closest one that comes to mind is I really do feel like the relationship between Black Panther and his half brother feels very Shakespearean. That's well, that's Shakespearean. I'm talking about like like a literal legit like Shakespeare adaptation, but with like a licensed character in the lead role. I don't don't think we've ever done that. I could be wrong. Like, you I know could, that you could have been comics that have You could that. see a Hamlet story starring Batman in the Hamlet role, oh. like a young Batman. Sure, why not? Yeah, because yeah, it is about the death of his father. That's, no, it could work. Yeah, mm. it's slightly different, but yeah, it could work. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, Batman's sort of a, a, a violent figure who wrestles with morals. That's also Hamlet-ish. Let me think about that, see if see, the, think yeah. that's ever been done, but I don't think I don't think so. it has, has been yeah. done. Yeah, anyway. But anyway, back to the bad sleep well. Um came out in 1960. Uh, it was... Uh, it's just it's just so gripping the way he uses the mundane to focus on the high tragedy of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. One could argue, if mm. one wanted, and I think it's probably in there, mm. that when Kenneth Branagh directed Thor, the whole bit with Loki comes across as mm. a bit Richard III. 
in, in a the cheapest possible way. Well, I don't think that, that, that film is very well directed. I, you didn't say, yeah. say it had to be yeah. good. <laughs> a, I like that movie, yeah. but B, you didn't say it had to be no, good, so that's it's irrelevant. Like, like ish. But yeah. Branna clearly enjoyed that like sort of melodrama behind you, you the think, scenes, yeah, royalty, can, I betray my father, that kind of thing. Like that's I, I clearly think, I think if Branna was allowed to write the Thor movie as well, he would have brought a lot more to that. You're but, probably right. Uh, but yeah, I think uh what Kurosawa is doing, though, Kurosawa just had it out for uh, modern-day Japanese corporate culture. Uh, that's a big part of Ikiru again, uh, but it's also kind of the point of the bad sleep well. The bad, yeah. the people who are sort of wrecking the Japanese economy through their corruption are the ones that are getting away with it the most. They're the ones who sleep well. Uh, for the I get it. For the longest time, I thought it was like a well, like a well of water full of bad sleep. It was this weird poetic term. <laughs> oh, it's the bad sleep well. The bad sleep well. No, the bad <laughs> sleep well. <laughs> it was for many, many years. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's adorable. Yeah, that's just, that's, a, that's I, so I, humanizing I, I, I saw <laughs> I saw more poetry in the title than was actually there. Uh, but yeah, he he's using the Hamlet story, I think, to examine something that's still very modern and very relevant, which I think Hamlet actually still does, and that is corruption at court. The people who are in charge of everything, and the modern uh, version of the court is now uh, the corporate boardroom, right. uh, is just full of back dealings and murders and people making all these you know backstabbing maneuvers, lying to each other, and that's just sort of par for the course. And... The wild card in this scenario is Hamlet. And why is he a wild card? Because, A, he's the only one who has an emotional response to any of this, besides, ha everything's fine. Yeah. And also, he's the only truly moral character. He's the one in the story mm. going, this, this is not normal. This isn't right. Yeah. yeah, why is everyone just letting this happen? We all know that this is weird, mm. right? Like... I'm in my 20s. There's literally no reason for me not to ascend to the throne hmm. in Hamlet. And this guy just just gets to marry my mom like hmm. the day after my dad mysteriously dies and become king. No one has a problem with this. No. No. Man. All right. Well, everyone's just going to die then. <laughs> yeah, and I, I feel like every character is, is kind of stained by some kind of... Uh, absent-mindedness in their relationship to the court. Mm. Even, like, in a, quote, innocent characters like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they're there to deceive Hamlet, for one. They've been hired yeah, to lie they're doing their job. Yeah. They're doing their jobs, and they're kind of buffoons. They don't question anything. Yeah. The, the most tragic figure is, of course, Ophelia, yeah. who is trying to get along as best she can, and in ingratiating herself is completely pilloried and rejected by Hamlet, who's trying to like going off on this wild new moral quest of his and kind of shoves her to the side to the point where she loses her mind. Well, he doesn't just shove her to the side. Like, he rejects her. He mm. questions her sincerity. Yeah. She is, in fact, being manipulated by her father. She's manipulated mm. by everybody until and, and, and she, she just loses her she mind. she kind yeah. of manipulates him because that's, like, her only recourse. Yeah. And he comes down so hard on her that she's she can't handle it. Yeah, tragic. Uh, um it's a great play. Right. Yeah, it's a great play, yeah. Um, uh, it, there's not all these straightforward analogs in the bad sleep well because because it's modern, it's modern uh, Japanese. But that moral questioning is still there, that there's a character who is moral enough yeah. to take it on. And Kurosawa was actually, typically speaking, a very optimistic filmmaker. Yeah. He believed that the right will out. And I feel like he saw Hamlet as a moral hero and the way Toshiro Mifune plays him, he's sort of 
projecting outrage and morals from the shadows using goodness to undo all of this evil. Right. And, and, and I really, I really love that about the bad sleep. Well, awesome. Uh, well, let's move on. Um, Richard the third was a play. Indeed. You may have heard of it. It's actually, from my understanding, like there was like a, I read a poll or something like a, a they did a study. And Richard III was actually, at the time, the most commonly performed Shakespeare move above play. I'm surprised it's not Romeo and Juliet. You would think yeah. it was Romeo and Juliet, but I, what I heard was it was Richard III. Actually. Okay. My, that might have changed by now, but it's one of his most popular plays, and it's largely because it's one of his most popular villains. And as we mentioned earlier, it's not necessarily historically accurate, but what a bad guy. <laughs> All right? The king, the, the, the kingdom is every peace, 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 peace. Everything's fine, right? Except, uh, hey, Richard III, you cool? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're cool. Hey, audience, I'm not cool. No, <laughs> not, none, of this, none of this shit's good. I'm going to kill the fuck out of everybody and ascend to the throne, even though I'm not even close in the line of succession. This is going to get fucked up. Watch me. Hmm. It's been filmed many times, often very well, but for me, the absolute best version is Richard Longcrane's version yeah, of 1995 yeah, yeah. starring Sir Ian McKellen. Is this on your list? It's not. Okay. It's, it's, it's a runner-up. I'm surprised because I it's, it's love bad, this version. Not bad by any stretch, but though. This, I, this, I really love it. This is one of my favorite Shakespeare uh, uh, movies, mm. maybe not plays, but movies, and it has been since I first saw it when I was young. Uh, Sir Ian McKellen, uh, who I think helped adapt it. and yeah, I, think, also, he, I think he wrote the screenplay. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he, uh, he plays Richard III. Uh, Ian McKellen was not a well-known name in uh, movie audiences. He was a... At least in America. In, well, especially in America. But, like, he wasn't in a lot of movies. He wasn't Gandalf yet. No, 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 no. He was he was a theater actor, and he was incredibly respected and beloved and rewarded. Uh, but in movies, he'd only done a couple of things. I think his first role ever was in um, that Michael Mann movie, um, the, the, the Keep. Oh yeah, 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 which is a bad movie. <laughs> it's quite, it is quite bad. And there's some cool stuff in it. It's, got a cool, it's not good. Cool, cool monster, interesting production design. Not yeah. a good movie. No, no, no. It's it's this horror movie, and it was not a good debut for mm. Ian McKellen. And he actually didn't hardly worked in film for a long time. And then he ended up appearing as Death in Last Action Hero. That's right. Like from Ingmar Bergman's film, like he ended up playing the character of Death. And apparently he played that because he hadn't done a lot of movies and he wanted to do a little research on how big movies were done so he could do this Richard the Third right. And as a result, Last Action Hero, I thank you. You're a little underrated to begin with, but you gave us this Richard the Third, and I am incredibly grateful to you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um uh, this okay. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Richard III, I gave you the gist of it. He's a bad guy. He ascends to the throne. Mm. Ian McKellen is so smug. <laughs> he's so wonderfully smug in this movie. He's got this like pencil thin Vincent Price mustache, yeah, well, and it's it's transposed to World War II. It's yeah. like fascist Germany. Uh, so they're they're drawing mm. parallels between Richard III and the rise of uh, yeah. Nazism. It, it's actually it's England, but they they don't pretend it's Germany. But like they're they're creating this alternate reality yeah, yeah. where England fell to fascism instead mm. of Germany, and that is told through the story of Richard III ascending unjustly um it is stylish it is funny it is wonderfully acted check out this cast this cast is gangbusters you got ian mckellen <laughs> annette oh, yeah. benning jim broadbent robert downey jr nigel hawthorne Kristen scott thomas and maggie smith 
That is great. That's an amazing yeah. cast. It's a really good movie. It was really acclaimed at the time. Yep, big um, deal when it came yeah, out. This this was a time when like indie films were really booming, and there were a lot of period pieces sort of leaking out. Several of which starred Robert Downey Jr. Curiously, yeah. uh, and. Uh, this one was causing a lot of ripples back in the mid nineties mm-hmm. as this kind of big deal. And a lot of critics were saying this one needs to get a lot of awards. Yeah. And it, it kind of came and went through awards season without uh, brushing up against a lot. I think it was not made my mouth for like a couple of like costume yeah. design things or whatever, but it made but Ian it, McKellen yeah. like a name that people in the industry knew and mm-hmm. got him work as these basic comic book and uh, mm-hmm. not basic, but like these comic book and, sci- yeah, and sci-fi fantasy heroes. Or villains. And, and, now, and now he's rich enough to afford that gigantic pink mansion he has in the French Riviera. God bless you, Ian McKellen. That's true, by the way. He has a giant pink mansion on the Riviera. But this movie is alive. Uh, this movie is so vibrant and crazy and full of incredible kills and explosions. And yeah, Robert Downey Jr.'s death haunts me to this it's day. So fucked up. <laughs> um, this movie is great. I just want you to see it and enjoy yeah. it. It's just a... It could just be a straight adaptation, but they just updated it to, you know, the 1930s. Yeah. It's just the best Richard III yeah. I've ever seen in a movie. What's your next one? Um, well, I'm, I'm going to go with... on. Um, I have two others that don't use Shakespeare's language. Okay. And in fact, one of them isn't based on a Shakespeare play. It's based on a Tom Stoppard play, which is based on a Shakespeare play. I came very close are, to putting it Are on you going to let me have this? Oh, I'm totally letting you okay. have this. Uh, the, the movie, based on the Tom Stoppard play, is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And it is Hamlet told from the perspective of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, these two very minor characters who appear in two scenes of, of Hamlet. They're hired. Is it only two? Yeah, they're in two scenes. I thought it was three. Okay, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they, they're hired by uh, Gertrude and Claudius to say, go talk to our son and make sure he's not insane. And they say, okay. <laughs> and they go up to Hamlet, they say, hey, dude, sup. And he gives the, his uh, what a piece of work is man's speech, which is, like, mm. beautiful and profound. And just sort of bounces off their heads. Okay. Well, it- and then he said, and then... Uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are tasked with uh, taking him out of the country and essentially killing him. Well, they're supposed to take him to another country and then present a letter to a king. And, and the say, king is going to execute please, him. Please kill like whoever is is delivering uh, this message. And- Hamlet switches the letters and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are killed by pirates, which sounds like something Hamlet made up. Wait, no. was Were they killed by pirates? I thought they ended up like delivering the message and were killed by that king. Doesn't like that mm. king send a, a messenger at the end, and well, it's Richard Attenborough, and he's oh, that's like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, but They're, they the, die. They die tragically for getting involved in things that were well above their pay grade. Right. They're it's, manipulated. They are outthought, mm. and they die sadly. And depending on who you talk to, they're sometimes considered maybe some of the most important characters in the play, despite mm. their low amount of stage time, because they're the only characters in the film that represent like the poor. Like, they're just yeah. they're just students. They're not mm. rich. They're not. They're some of Hamlet's school chums. Yeah, they're just normal people who die because they are in the proximity mm. of the selfish and murderous yeah. rich. Yeah, yeah. and that yeah, is uh, and that is very sad. Even of if which, they are of which Hamlet is one. We yeah. call him as this moral character, but he has many great failings. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and these two guys get killed and real bad. Tom Stoppard thought, hey, what if we tell the story from their perspective? What kind of people are they? It turns out they're kind of dummies. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a, the, the film and the play both open with uh, 
Rosencrantz or Guildenstern, their names kind of interchange a little bit, which is one of the jokes. There's a gag in the play Hamlet where people keep mixing up their names, mm. and in Tom Stoppard's play, he decides that although it's clear in like the screenplay who's talking, mm. their identities are they're, they're so unimportant to everybody that their identities are literally interchangeable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a very heady and, play and, actually. And, and, <laughs> In the film, they're played by Gary Oldman and Tim Roth, which is, first of yeah. all, yes. And, uh, by the way, this is 1990. Neither of them were famous in movies yet. Not yet. Yeah. They, yeah. They, neither of them had really broken through. They were like in t- Mike Lee movies. Uh, they were yeah. big in England, but yeah, they weren't really big in America yeah. they, yet. Reservoir Dogs hadn't been a thing. A few years I, away. I think uh, Gary Oldman, what was his Gary Oldman's big breakout in America? Was it The Professional or was it Dracula? Might have been The Professional. One but, of those. They were in the early 90s. But yeah, this is before mm-hmm. people knew these guys. Uh, and the the play opens with them flipping a coin. It's like, oh, heads, heads. It's only heads. It never, Always never, never heads. comes up tails. And uh, and they look at the coin and they say, this means something beyond the redistribution of wealth. It's like, what? <laughs> like, like they think they're smart, but they're not. And they run into another supporting character from Hamlet, the Player King, mm-hmm. uh, who has been hired to perform uh, Hamlet's play within a play. Mm-hmm. And the Player King. N- is clearly a modern character. He knows how Hamlet is going to play out. Yeah. So he knows he's entering this sort of doomed scenario and he's kind of playful about it. Yeah, because... He like, knows these characters are going to die. Because, again, he's... And he's played by Richard Dreyfus, and he's amazing in the movie. And because, yeah, he he does all these plays. The whole idea of the mousetrap is that it's parallel to what Hamlet's actually going through. Mm-hmm. And it pre-exists. So here's this guy who has done all of these... Shakespearean type tragedies on in the stage, and as soon as he's in the castle, he recognizes what's going on. I'm like, I know everything that's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> and he's right because <laughs> like, he's he's like Randy and Scream. Like, there's there's a very specific formula. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh well, we, we can do a play for you, but we're more of the love, blood, and rhetoric school. Now we can give you love and blood without the rhetoric, and we can give you rhetoric and blood without the love, or we can give you all three, but we can never give you love and rhetoric without the blood. Blood is compulsory. <laughs> I watched this play, this film a lot when I was in college. This was a big discovery for me when I was in high school. Yeah, like I yeah. fell in love with the play. I really wanted to like do the play, and of course, no one in my high school wanted to do it. Of course not. No, but it would have been so fun. <laughs> Can you imagine a bunch of high schoolers trying to pull this one off? So it it is this. I mean, because. Hamlet is this weird sort of self-reflexive existentialist play. It's really uh, uh, deconstructing a lot of uh, dramatic tropes. So Tom Stoppard did the play one better. Yeah. Try to deconstruct it. F- like how do you deconstruct another, a deconstructionist yeah. play? Exactly, and yeah. he does it. He ends up to like pull it yeah. apart even more. When you think about like what's it like to be a character who becomes consciously aware that they are not the protagonist in their story? Yeah. And there's something really deep about that. And I think the play and the movie capture it. Tom Stopper directed this. Yeah. And there's a fun story he told where um, he'd never directed a film before. Mm. And he'd been making the film for a while when I think one of the producers came on and said, um, I noticed that you're not really moving the camera. And Tom mm. Stopper was like, that's right. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Used to theater, just sort of sit still. The audience, the audience is there. So this sometimes feels a little stagey, but the acting is so vibrant and the play is so witty that uh, it's it's fantastic. And this almost made my list. I I didn't. There are actually several. I'll mention them in my runners up. There are actually several Shakespeare movies that are not explicitly adaptations of Shakespeare, but they're about Shakespeare or they're parallel to Shakespeare in some way that I feel are totally worthy of being in the conversation. And if I thought they were in my top ten worthy. 
mm-hmm. they would be on my list. They just, they're just not. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, I just did Richard the Third, and I actually set a goal for myself that I was going to not do multiple films that were adaptations of the same play. Uh, I have three Hamlets on my list. Yeah, so. <laughs> you know what? And I, this is the one exception I made for that because Richard Longcrane's Richard the Third is for me the best Richard the Third. Okay. But I think the most interesting Richard the Third is Al Pacino's. Looking for Richard. Looking for Richard is a film that came out one year after mm. Richard Longcrane's version. Mm. It was well received but quickly forgotten, and that is a crime. Al Pacino directs a film slash documentary. The documentary is, on one hand, a documentary about the history of Richard III, and he talks to a lot of Shakespearean experts. Mm-hmm. There's also that is the play Richard III, not not the king. Well, but they do talk about that too. Oh, but like, it's mostly down. about the play, uh, and talks about like why is the play so significant? Why does it still resonate? Why is it so popular? How does the production of the play like? How does it work? What what are the nuts and bolts of how Shakespeare wrote it? Um, it's also a documentary about Al Pacino directing a movie based on Richard III, and it is also the movie Richard III that he made. Hmm. This is very heady stuff. This is the kind of stuff that like, I would only expect someone like Orson Welles to pull off, but Al Pacino actually yeah. makes this damn thing work. Sha- it is Shakespeare psychotaxoplasm. Kind of, yeah. And it's it's exciting it's spry at the end of the thing you only get like the cliff's notes version of richard the third but it's a good richard the third al pacino <laughs> is a good richard the third the cast is strong but there's a, what i love is getting to see the production that is made and these very thoughtful actors writers producers scholars sort of add their input and their thoughts to it and my favorite scene in this whole damn thing is when they go to visit Shakespeare's home, mm. like his family home in, in Stratford, in Stratford yeah. upon Avon, as opposed to the others. Uh, they go into the house, and the producer is just like, well, "This is just a house," and Al Pacino's like, "This is not just a house. This is where William Shakespeare was lived." Mm. And he's like, "Yeah, but I, didn't, I expected to come in here and have some kind of epiphany." He's like. Well, I had an epiphany. I want you to go outside right now, come back in, and have an epiphany. Because this is amazing where we are right now. He has so much respect for it. And he has so much awareness of how our surroundings inform us. Apparently, this is actually uh, this actually ended up relating to the Irishman. Because when he went to the house that they built for where like Jimmy Hoffa died, apparently he remembered this scene from looking for Richard and he was just like this is the this is where we think it happened this holy crap and he just thought it was so epic to think about such a gigantic monumental thing happening in just this house yeah and he's so insightful and the rest of the people who are interviewed and are performing the play are so smart and so good at it and you just get this wonderful sense of Shakespeare not just as a play not just as a playwright but as a tradition that has been passed down from actors and writers and directors onward and onward and so forth, and everyone informing each other's performances. And it's really beautiful. I mm-hmm. love this movie to pieces. It doesn't get talked about enough. I highly recommend I highly recommend everything on my list. But like seriously, <laughs> this one is dramatically mm-hmm. overlooked. It's wonderful. Please go see Looking for Richard. It, I haven't seen it since the mm-hmm. 90s. Ah. And, and it's so I, I can't in good conscience like 
wholly recommend it. I remember Fair. really loving it. Fair enough. But it, it's not so clear in my memory that I can sort of recommend it's, it. It's but been I, a hot I'm, minute I'm since I've seen to, it. I'll, I'll admit that. It's been, it's been a while, but like I remember very vividly. I, I will fan. not contest looking for Richard. Um, okay. I, I remember Richard Longcrane's film version much better. Okay, moving um, on. Getting some of the heavy hitters now. Um, yeah, it's starting to get a little tricky. I'll, I'll, you know what? This is one of my favorites, but I'm going to talk about it now. Okay. Uh, because we got to talk about Kenneth Branagh eventually. And uh, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh did at least three great Shakespearean adaptations and a couple others that are pretty good as well. You know what I never got around to was in The Bleak Midwinter? Which is good. Uh, I, which is about the... Pr- uh, it's... Um, about a, a theater troupe that's putting on a production of Hamlet. Yeah, um, and um, I, I saw like part of this when I was younger. Like it just happened to be on cable, and I mm. loved it. But I almost saw the second half of the movie, oh. and I really wanted to watch it for this list. And it turns out not streaming anywhere. Really hard to find on DVD. Really? Yeah, that's, I that's was not able to get even like cling on to my cling on to my VHS copy yeah. of it. Then cling, yeah. if you have a copy of that, cling on to that because apparently mm. this is not being distributed yes. very well. I really wanted to watch it. I've always meant to, and just had a good excuse this month. It's it's called know. A Midwinter's Tale in America. It's mm-hmm. called In the Bleak Midwinter in England. So yeah. may, maybe if you look up under I, a different title, I did look uh, it up under both titles, right. but uh, yeah, couldn't find it. But uh, Kenneth Branagh won my heart back in 1993 when he made Much Ado About Nothing. <laughs> the horniest Shakespeare adaptation. It's it's horny. It's bright. It's frothy. It's funny. It is so full of life and energy. Everybody's great in it except Keanu Reeves. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's true. It's true. <laughs> It's true. It's an amazing. It's let's talk about this cast real fast because you got Kenneth Branagh and Emma oh. Thompson as Benedict and Beatrice, and they're wonderful together. And they're, and they're just, mm. the, like they, they never had better chemistry. You got the Denzel Washington. You've got so, Kate yeah. Beckinsale, Robert Sean Leonard, Brian Blessed, <laughs> uh, Imelda Staunton in an early role. Like who's, I don't even mm. know if she has any lines, but she's there. No, she, she has a couple lines, not really. But like she's younger than I've ever seen her in anything. Mm. Um, and. Yeah, it's and this. Ke- I just Keanu. rewatched this. And Keanu, who plays Denzel Washington's brother, okay. Well, um, he's, he's he's Don John the Bastard, and uh, yeah. still fun. Don, Don, if you if you read the te- if you read the text of Much Ado About Nothing, you can tell Shakespeare has no interest in Don John whatsoever. Don John like, is has, one of the most no, half-hearted has, villains I've ever seen. Like, he has he's, no motivation. He's not really all that evil. He just wants to wreck everybody's good time, and then he leaves and doesn't really have. Like, he, he leaves the stage and then he's apprehended at the Here, end, and that's kind here, of it. Here's the plot of Much Ado About Nothing, and the title is basically about just kind of how formless this is. Mm. Um, it's just after a war, soldiers are returning from war. A bunch of gallant, ha-ha, kind of men. And they go back to this Itali- to this uh, villa. Mm. I think it's Italian in the play as well. It's Italian in the movie. Mm. Pe- Pedro... And they go back yeah. to the, they go back to this villa where full of family friends and 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 comely lasses of virtue true and <laughs> everyone's everyone's there to fuck and they're all going to have a great time but they're going to have a big party uh but the but but uh, the Don is it Don? Who's the bad guy again? Is it Don? Don, Don John. Don John. Yeah, Don Pedro is the Denzel Washington character. Don Pedro. Uh, Denzel Washington is Don Pedro. Don John is Keanu Reeves and. Don John literally just flat out says, you know, ordinarily I'd like to take over the kingdom, but we're stuck at this villa, so 
I don't know, I'll fuck with some love triangles. What the hell? I'm yeah. a bad guy. And that's it. I, that's his whole motivation. That's it. Keanu Reeves I can, has I like. I cannot two, help, but I am but a plain dealing villain. Like, Keanu Reeves, I, Keanu Reeves, I think, is a good actor. Keanu Reeves <laughs> is. Keanu Reeves, I, I didn't say I, he has a wide range. Okay. Keanu Reeves yeah, can be a good actor. He can be a good actor. He can be a good actor. There are definitely. And I think he's gotten better as time goes on. I think he's a better actor now than he ever was. Um. He is so mismatched to Shakespeare. Like, he is just not Mm. feeling the Shakespeare at all. And you can tell he has one, he has like two scenes with dialogue in it. Uh One in which he shows people, like, look, he's he's having sex with your betrothed, with your beloved. And like, that's it. He's got like four lines. And he's got one big villain speech scene. And Branna... (laughs) Plays up that scene to try to distract from Keanu Reeves' performance as much as possible. They get his, they get his shirt off. They make yeah. him all greasy. Yeah, he <laughs> surrounds him with actors who are acting circles around him to make him look better. And you'll notice Patrick Doyle does a really beautiful score for this movie. Oh, score, yeah, yeah. It normally gets out of the way of the acting, mm. except the Keanu Reeves scene when he <laughs> it is doing all of the work. It is adding inflection mm. that Keanu Reeves doesn't have. This is the, maybe the only reason this isn't my number one on my list. It's just because of Keanu Reeves. It's just because of Keanu Reeves. And you know what? It doesn't even hurt the film that much. It doesn't hurt the film that much. And I think it, it Kenneth Branagh was doing something on purpose there. I think he was casting Keanu Reeves not only because he was a star. Yeah. Like was he, he was time. a name in 93. He had already yeah. done Dracula. And I mean, he already had Bill Denzel, Ted, yeah. but like whatever. I might as well add another um, one. Uh, and I think he was doing that to show kind of how insubstantial a villain Don John is. I think he was doing that on purpose. That's kind of funny, but I yeah. also think he might have overthought that. Maybe, maybe <laughs> so. Maybe, I, I like to think he was doing it on purpose. Fair um, enough. But he is an insubstantial villain because basically what the whole point is, this guy loves that girl. Don John gets in the way and makes that guy think that girl cheated on him. And he ends up like brutally like... Rejecting her on the wedding day uh, and then she at ends the up, altar, yeah. and then they have and they to like stage a suicide. They pretend yeah, yeah. that she killed herself so that he'll be guilted into doing the right thing. It's all a mess. And uh, meanwhile, but but who cares about the breeding couple? We want to hear about <laughs> Beatrice and Benedict. Beatrice and Benedict were like childhood friends who just hate each other and right. bicker at each other, and they both vowed to remain lifelong bachelors. And at some point, uh, uh, Don Pedro Denzel Washington says, "You know what? I'm sick of this." They're Let's make them think they're in love with each other. And so they all, everyone has nothing better to do. This is like the king. They have nothing better to do but to trick Benedict into thinking Beatrice is in love with him. But she's so proud that she will never admit it. So mm. no matter how much she denies it, he thinks, oh. And they do the exact same thing to Beatrice. And it's hilarious. Branna and Thompson have never been better. And that's actually saying something. Mm. They are delightful. This is one of those great Italian villa movies, which is basically just like, wouldn't you love to just hang out at an Italian villa in a temperate time of year, eat olives and grapes, bathe and have sex with attractive people? And the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Kenneth Branagh really has a good knack for hanging out. Yeah. Uh, It's my favorite scene in that uh, Cinderella film he did. Oh yeah. Was the scene where all like the prince and all of his courtly dudes are just sort of <laughs> hanging out, sword fighting, and patting each other on the back? Like there's no dialogue during that scene, mm-hmm. but there there's something just so lively about that. Like it's not even about the prince character; he's, he's so not, like it, it adds a, a, a quandary character that, in that, that movie. That that adaptation. One of the reasons I like that adaptation is it gives the non Cinderella characters just more yeah like the stepmother is so much better in that version like she's evil as hell in the animated version and mm. i like her but 
Kate Blanchett's version is so much more rich, and the prince is actually a character in this one. Yeah, he actually uh, relates to Cinderella. Yeah, he they, doesn't they he get along, and it's not like he takes up screen time mm. that should be reserved for Cinderella because it's her movie. No, he gets like an additional scene and a half to be a person, mm. and it helps it so really, much. Really helps. Branagh understands the importance of getting to know your characters and giving them time to hang out. Yeah, yeah. and this is and I feel one like of those mo- movies. It's a lot of it's just hanging out. Much ado about nothing delightful. is is all hangouts. Like oh. We're, we're coming back. Oh, great. Let's take baths. Yeah. Why are we taking baths? Because there's a party tonight. This movie opens <laughs> with everyone just hanging out in an Italian villa, yeah. eating grapes, and saying silly poetry. And then, oh, the heroes are back from war. And it's this glorious slow-mo shot of all of the biggest stars in the movie galloping on horses. And all of them, like, run into this villa at a mad gallop. And then immediately take off all their clothes and show their mm. bare butts. And take gorgeous baths together. And all of the women take gorgeous baths together and put on silken clothes so that they can be horny and better <laughs> better clothes. Um, and then they put on nice yeah. masked parties where they can be horny. And... There, there's one really uh, cute <laughs> shot, and you can tell Imelda Staunton did this. Uh, she's yeah. like putting, like, everybody's in a hurry and they're all dressing really quickly and they're all laughing and giggling and throwing feathers at one another. It's a, it's a slumber party of a movie. And... <laughs> And Amelda Staunton uh, like puts like uh, some powder on her face and then like powder like some perfume and powders up her chest like she's mm. got a big bustier yeah. and she picks up a mirror shows it at her cleavage kind of like approves and then puts the mirror down <laughs> she doesn't even look at her face that's a, a cute little moment I love that it's a f- film full of cute little moments mm. every performance in it is amazing except Kenner's and <laughs> it's 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 funny it the jokes work even if the language is mm. a little above and maybe your pay grade because. Uh, the actors know how to sell it in such a way that it feels conversational and light. And uh, and we didn't even talk about Michael Keaton yet. Who oh is, my god! <laughs> who plays Dogberry the cop? And uh, Dogberry the cop in he, the way Michael Keaton plays him, he plays him almost like Beetlejuice. Yeah, it's like very he's, broad. He's, he's got like this really weird voice, and he's all sweaty and drunk and gr- he 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 leans on his aide and falls asleep, and then <laughs> and then farts himself awake. <laughs> This is a Shakespeare movie. And that's exactly what Shakespeare would have done. You his, know he would have. His comic relief yeah. characters were not subtle. Uh, I, it, this movie has ruined the play for me because I feel like no other production I ever see is going to live up to it. This is so alive. This is yeah. Shakespeare absolutely alive in its utmost form. And this is obviously this is on my list as well. Mm. It's really wonderful. It's aged really well. Oh yeah! Like I just rewatched it for this because I hadn't seen it since the '90s. It's so good! It's so good. This is a vacation of a film. Hmm. See this movie. It's so great. All right. Well, um, actually, you're uh, uh, you're one behind me because of how things worked out. Oh, so okay. Why don't you get with the next one as well? All right. Um, uh, more heavy hitters. Um, it it's it's tough to do this without repeating directors. Yeah. I, and I did it a couple times. Uh, I only I, did it once. I'm not doing it with Olivier, but I am doing it with Kurosawa. Okay. Uh, because I love Ron. Ron, made Ron me, is great. Ron made me fall in love with Kurosawa, and it also made me understand King Lear. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I saw it when I was like maybe 12. Yeah. I came out in 1985. It was one of Kurosawa's later movies, and it doesn't look or feel like any of his other movies, even his later ones. No, it's really got, like colorful and giant. It, it's colorful, it's giant, and it's... it's in, like slow moving and downbeat in a way that his other movies aren't. Even though it's also an epic war movie. Yeah, yeah. It's but crazy. The, but uh, like, the the epic war part of it is almost like a backdrop for the misery in the center. Yeah. Uh, and the, it's about um, Emperor Ichimonji, uh, 
who is, it's the leader's story. He is going to, uh, he wants to retire. He wants to give up being a warmonger. Uh, evidently in the past, uh, he was a little bit more of a stern ruler, but mm. now it's time for him to retire. And He's he played by the spread... great Tatsuya Nakadai, by the yeah. way, who everyone always gives Kurosawa and uh, Toshiro Mifune all the credit in the world for working together so many times. Mm. He worked with Tatsuya Nakadai about as often, and I would actually argue that that Nakadai might even be the better actor. He is an incredible mm. performer. He's one of my favorite actors who ever lived. And in Ron, he he's just defeated throughout. Like he has this really stark makeup mm. to make him look like he's a corpse. Yeah, but he yeah he looks just like a hollowed out human being. And you know the story of King Lear, as you probably know, is the king wants to divide his kingdom in three amongst his three daughters and Ron, its sons. Mm. And uh, he's retiring early. Like, yeah. he, normally you, the king dies and you do it in the theater. He's like, no, fuck it. I'm just going to give it up between you and I just get to m- m- sort of putter around, right? Everyone's cool with that. And everyone's like, yeah, sure, dad, whatever. We're going to fucking get rid of him. Yeah. The, so two of, two of the sons are like these these horrible uh, opportunists who are going to take advantage of every opportunity and try to take over each other's kingdoms. Yeah. The third one, the only moral one, says, this is fucked, dad. You can't just do that and like divide <laughs> your kingdom up and have things just be kind of copacetic. You understand the kind of people you've raised, right? Yeah. Uh, in in the play, it's Cordelia. I forgot the name of the char- the Cordelia character in Ron. Um, uh, yeah. Um, oh, oh, uh, uh, it's uh, Saburo. Saburo, that's Saburo. right. Saburo. Saburo uh, is, is sort of the Cordelia character, mm-hmm. and uh, Saburo uh, absconds with the fool. There's a fool character in both Lear and in Ron. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ichimonji essentially just watches his kingdom fall apart because of his bad ruling and the, the people he's raised. Yeah. And, and it's about, not just about how this guy is going mad, which I think too many renditions of Lear focus on. The fact yeah. that he's losing his mind, he's just not all there anymore. Because it's, because it's so many, I actually did, like, in high school, mm. we, we did, like, some King Lear. Yeah. And I played King Lear. And it's oh, a fun cool. character to play because he's got these, like, big, giant scenes because he is going mad. And he is, all of a sudden, he went from having everything to having nothing, not even his sanity. And there's something wonderfully sort of dramatically epic about that. And it's full of incredible speeches about mm. talking to hurricanes and ooh. <laughs> but that's that's another one where I feel like that's kind of a trap where if you focus so much on King Lear, you realize that it's not so much King Lear as it is what he has wrought. Yeah. And what he has wrought affects King Lear, but it affects everyone else as well. And you can't well, keep the focus only on the old guy. Yeah, and I, I think a, a, something that Kurosawa captures is that he has, in the past, morally failed his kingdom, yeah. or his, his, his um, empire. Yeah. And now all, all of the things that he sort of laid the groundwork for are playing themselves out, and it's something he never predicted. So mm-hmm. the, the scene near the end where uh, the camera's kind of on... Ichimonji as he's wandering through the battlefield yeah. and it is this gigantic Huge. expansive shot that Huge. Kurosawa had hired hundreds of actors and they're all color coded in this weird and they're all fighting on this barren ashen battlefield and these bright mm-hmm. colors and Ichimonji's just sort of wandering through not really paying attention to any of it just yeah, realize I am I'm in hell now yeah. there's nothing that could there's nothing worse that can happen I'm just gonna walk away uh Ron uh, is the Japanese word for chaos, which oh. is a great way to uh, to think of King Lear, isn't it? About the sort of the chaos you you 
write down as rulers. It is about how power corrupts. Mm. I said that uh, Kurosawa was, was generally a very optimistic filmmaker, but this is kind of one of his more pessimistic movies. Well, it's a, it's a Shakespearean tragedy, it's a Shakespearean isn't it? There's, tragedy, not a lot of, yeah. there's not a lot of like optimism to be mm. found in it. And I think it's one of the reasons why it stands out in his filmography, but it's one of many reasons. Mm. Um, this is, near as I can tell, the best King Lear adaptation I've ever seen in a movie. It came very close to making my top ten. Okay. Um, I'm kind of surprised nobody's done um, a sci-fi King Lear. It makes perfect sense. It like, does d- divide we the the Galactic Star Empire in three. I, it would not. It would not surprise me. I'm still waiting. I I feel like Kenneth Branagh is like waiting to do King Lear. He's gonna wait like ten years until he's just an old guy, hmm. and like and he'll really look the part, and hmm. he's gonna like make one last go at the Oscars with King Lear mm. because he never won one. He worked so hard. And, uh, but um, but, but in, in order to juice up Ron, yeah. I, I wanted to add this as well. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, there's also a Lady Macbeth in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's in the play, too, but they really amplify yeah, her character yeah. in Ron. And, and there's a, a um, Lady Kaide played by, oh, gosh, what is uh, the actress who played that? Uh, Miko Harada. Miko Harada, who's great She's in this amazing. Role. It's, it's, it's and, a uh, fantastic role. She's yeah. so so wonderfully manipulative. There's this really wonderful shot where she's like trying to manipulate one of the sons. Like, no, you have to do this. You have to do this. And she's like just completely destitute. She falls on the ground weeping and weeping with his back turned. And while she's on the floor, she notices a cockroach crawling past her. And while she's weeping, <laughs> she just crushes it with her thumb. Yeah. <laughs> she just kills the roach while she's <laughs> Pretending to like manipulate this guy. It's like what a bastard this character is. This is a this is a truly epic, amazing motion yeah. picture. And in retrospect, probably should have been on my top ten, so I'm glad you put it in there. All right. Um please, please I say this all the time. These are all amazing movies. Shakespeare yeah. movies don't get seen enough. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know it, but you might not. And if that's the case, if this, if this is an introduction to any of these films, awesome. Yeah. Um okay, moving on. Uh I am willing to bet that my top three are probably your top three. It might, it might be. I'm very <laughs> curious what you put as your number one. I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. What decade is your number one from? The 1990s. Okay. You know what I put. Yeah. I suspect <laughs> I know what you put. So I'm going to talk about another film from the 1990s for my number three. All right. I'm going to talk about Julie Taymor's Truly Astounding Titus. Came out in 2000, but all right. No, no 99. That was, what, that was its Oscar qualifying year. Oh, yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah! All right, you're right. I'm wrong. I would have okay. missed a Schmodown question. There. <laughs> that I, but I, pretty obscure even for them. That is on your list. T- right? Titus is in my top three. I love Titus. <laughs> Titus is a better movie than, uh, than Titus Andronicus deserves. Yeah, Titus Andronicus. <laughs> it's kind of like Coriolanus. It's about the downfall of, like a, of a general mm. who... Uh, got in, too involved in politics, and his family ended up destroying themselves and being like preyed well, upon by rivals. And there's cannibalism was, and yeah, horror and mutilation. The, uh, and in order to prove his mettle in battle, uh, Titus Andronicus has uh, a, a rival queen's child killed. Yeah, and she spends the rest of the play getting revenge on him and his family. Yeah, and. The shit they do. Oh my goodness. <laughs> is some of the most harrowing, bloody, twisted shit you've ever seen in it, any play. If you played Titus straight, mm. like if you played it like really realistically, it would 
kind of be like a Saw movie. Like, yeah, it's so... It's a horror play. It's kind of puerile in a lot of ways. Like, it's kind of immature and gross, yeah. and it's just kind of like Shakespeare going, oh, is this what you like? Mm. Well, here's some more gore, and here's some more people being terrible to each other, and, and here's some more violations, and everyone's and like, yay! And here's <laughs> the thing. It was Shakespeare's biggest hit. Yeah, it was. It was the the highest, the biggest selling play in his lifetime. And 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 you know what? I, I get it. <laughs> it's not his classiest work. It's not his most interesting work. Julie Taymor, on the other hand, acknowledged that this is Shakespeare at his sleaziest. This yeah. is Shakespeare at his most flamboyantly unapologetic. And she made a movie adaptation of Titus called Titus. Starring Anthony Hopkins and uh, Jessica Lange and mm. Harry Lennox and a ton of other great actors. Harry Lennox is great. Real breakout role mm. for Harry Lennox. He was not a household name before this. This really helped him a lot. Alan Cumming is in this as well. He's yeah. a really good scene stealer as well. Um, and she just... Everything was already at a 10 in Titus. She pushed everything to a 13. <laughs> the production design is gigantic. The performances are gigantic. Everything is souped up with unnecessary visual effects. Yeah, there's Every- a lot of weird surrealist stuff in mm-hmm. the play. Julie Taymor is not a subtle filmmaker. And Goodness, no. No, no. Sometimes that series of films really, really well. Wish, Sometimes it's a bit much. I wish she'd work in film more. I, I know. Really she's wish so she great. I'm a, I'm a fan. Even like the stuff that I don't love, mm. like I appreciate. Yeah, like I, I appreciate Te- Tempest was a big swing. Didn't work because I think Tempest kind of failed it. But like, like the play wasn't there. Mm. But like, yeah, no, I, I think Frida is really excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, across, I know Across the Universe is. I read Hot and Cold on Across the Universe. I mostly I, I, like Across. I the think universe. I, I think I appreciate it more than I like it. I understand that a lot of people are offended by the existence of Across the Universe because mm-hmm. it like takes the Beatles out of all the yeah, Beatles like re- music, recontextualizes the Beatles. But what I kind of like about Across the Universe is that it imagines that if the Beatles somehow didn't exist in the 1960s, everything that they said, mm-hmm. everything they had to say about the 60s, would have still been relevant and still been present even if no one sang about it yeah so i kind of dig that i think it's an interesting sort of alternate history 60s kind of thing and of course it's really fanciful and mm-hmm. giant and some of the production numbers are really on the nose but they're also uh, the, really uh, fun the uh the opening sequence if i want to hold your hand uh-huh where it's uh, a, a lonely cheerleader sitting in the stand watching a football game, mm-hmm. singing I Want to Hold Your Hand, and she's looking out at the football game, and the, the camera's zooming through the football game, like right at the star quarterback. And, like, and it's like in slow-mo. It's in slow-mo, slow-mo and, and he, like, he takes off his helmet and whips his hair, and he's this like studly bop magazine cover. Mm-hmm. And then he steps aside, and we realize that she's been staring at a girl across the way. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's nice. like, I want to hold your hand. It's actually, yeah, this really kind of sweet uh, reinterpretation of I, that I, song. I, I'm not going to call it like an underappreciated classic, but I do think that movie's better than its reputation and i do like it a lot mm. um I, i'm a fan of julie taymor i think julie taymor is one of the more fascinating filmmakers of her generation i do wish she she worked more and i think titus is this kind of amazing magnum opus where she took this really gross shakespeare play mm. and never apologized for it never tried to make it into something it wasn't in fact it actually just amplified it so much that the things that are cool about it became really foregrounded and everything that wasn't cool actually didn't matter anymore because we're so distracted by the details. This is a fascinating way to, you know, a lot of like Shakespeare plays we've been talking about, like how like, Oh yeah, I didn't really do justice to the play or they took out this thing or Keanu was miscast or whatever like that. And here it's just like, no, everything's better. 
Every <laughs> single damn thing is better. It's so yeah. good. So, some of I the, love it. Some of the speeches in this, and I've read the screenplay to this. I just love this movie so much. I I saw it, and then I gathered up a bunch of friends, and I insisted they watch it with me. They didn't care, but I <laughs> I, I, I wanted them to see Titus just because I thought it was so exhilarating. I ended mm-hmm. up seeing it three times in theaters. Uh, and, and I end up reading the screenplay and there's little surrealist uh, kind of asides uh, where Shakespeare's speeches are given in this kind of bizarro netherworld mm-hmm. of these weird kind of music video images. And they're called Penny Arcade Nightmares. Ima- oh, yeah. Imagine if it's like a combination of modern day punk, weird experimental theater uh like Gronguignol horror and MTV just kind of all mashed together. And Great. it's, and, yeah, it's all, and all of the best of those things put together. Uh, yeah. Titus Andronicus has some really twisted shit in it. And what Julie Taymor presents to us is something that we as critics don't usually say out loud a lot, but it's the fact that violence can be beautiful if you look at it in an aesthetic sort of way, why do we film it so much? Mm-hmm. Why is there violence in so many movies? Why do we vaunt it? I mean, some of the most popular movies of all time are action pictures about conflicts, mm-hmm. physical conflicts, where people get hurt and die. Yeah. She is trying to say that there is this kind of grand poetic theatrical tradition to violence as entertainment yeah. that Titus Andronicus not only is drawing from, but really perfectly exemplifies. Like pain is beautiful mm. to look at when it is beautifully acted and presented. Mm. Hatred can be beautiful to look it, at. It's if exhilarating. It is pres- yeah. If it is presented by someone who understands the consequence of that hatred mm. And that it is fascinating without being good. Hmm. All of these things are possible. All of these things Julie Taymor does in ways that I don't think other filmmakers all have. I I can't imagine. I'm trying to think. Let's do an exercise. Imagine a filmmaker who could adapt Titus Andronicus as well or better. Hmm. You need somebody... With like yeah, with that sort of flair for violence. Yeah, but Somebody also someone like, who doesn't fetishize it. Mm. Julie Taymor beautifully illustrates it without fetishizing. Darren Aronofsky could Darren, do it. Darren Aronofsky could do it because he, he's got a, a mm. weird, ambitious aesthetic. Who could, I could, really I could kind of delve. Well, you haven't seen so maybe. You haven't seen Mother yet. No, I never okay. saw Mother. I know that's what you're there's, thinking. There's of. some pretty horrendous violence in that one too. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm allowing. I'm thinking of Noah and how just wild and crazy Noah is. Yeah, he can, how, he can do wild I can and crazy. Picture it. I can picture it. I can picture mm. it. Maybe as good, but I don't know. I don't know. That's a maybe. Mm. That's a that's a that's a distinct maybe. Mm. I don't know. Mm. I I honestly don't know. But I would yeah. I would be fascinating to see anyone else try. Um. All right. Uh. So that so was I, your I, number three. It's my I, number three. I have, I have two left. Uh, th- again, these are yeah. These aren't like really countdowns. We're just sort of talking about no, the ones we want to talk about. The reason why is because like I think if at all possible, it's good to save our number ones for last because those mm. are. The way we do our top tens, in case you hadn't noticed, yeah, I usually preface an iron list with this. I think I forgot this time is these are not in order or the order is arbitrary. These are all high recommendations yeah. for everybody, but it is a list and we think it's fair to like, we do have to pick one favorite, mm-hmm. whether we think it's the best or just one the like we one we like the most. Um, so we do save that for last if we can, but sometimes it's like, ah, oh, my number nine was your number one. So we're talking about it now, but we're coming right down to the wire. 
And I'm willing to suspect that we have the same top two. <laughs> I think we do. Because these are maybe the two best Shakespeare movies. I just, think there's a decent yeah. argument to be made that these two films are the two best Shakespeare movies. So unless I'm very surprised and you pick something really, really weird. Like, uh, like you pick like She's the Man as your number two. And I'm like, it's okay. I, I would not pick She's the Man as number two of anything. <laughs> Not even the best She's the Man movies. Not not even the best of that wave of teen-ready classical adaptations mm. of literature. Of which there were some good ones. Uh, mm. But, uh, no. Uh, for, so, um... Mm. Just say them both. It's fine. Midsummer Night's Dream from the 1930s? Thir- 1935, yeah. 1935. Oh. And Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. And Branagh's Hamlet, that's Those right. are the two. <laughs> Those are the two absolute best yeah. Shakespeare movies I think have ever been filmed. Mm. I haven't seen all of them. I grant you this. There might be one obscure one that I haven't seen or maybe a couple of the bigger ones. Like, mm-hmm. I'm fine. These movies are kind of everything I want from Shakespeare on on screen. Mm-hmm. And not because I have these rigid ideas of what Shakespeare should be. Mm-hmm. But because I think these are the most sumptuous, loving adaptations that truly appreciate the source material, that make the source material accessible uh, without ever hiding what they really are, which mm-hmm. is these really elaborate productions of stage plays using techniques that were not available in the theater. Uh, Midsummer Night's Dream is uh, uh, one of Shakespeare's broader comedies in terms of its mm-hmm. plot and execution because it's a story of a bunch of lovers wandering around the woods and then a bunch of supernatural uh, uh, beings in the woods, nymphs, fairies, fairies, whatever, they uh, decide to uh, play a trick on them and they all take a bunch of love potions and everyone falls in love with the wrong person and it's really awkward. Uh, Meanwhile, there's a group of actors uh, who are trying to put on a play for an upcoming like royal wedding to perform, but they're all bumbling idiots. And one of them, the the haughtiest and most uh, smug and bumbling and egotistical of them all, Bottom the Weaver, yeah. Bottom the Weaver, he gets cursed by a fairy and gets the head of a donkey, head of an ass. And then the queen of the fairies is tricked into having a love potion and falling in love with guy with donkey head. <laughs> it's a silly story. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the whole thing wraps up in Act 4, and then Act 5 is all of the characters in the movie or the play you just watched mm. sitting down and watching a play within a play. You fi- get to finally watch those actors play their whole play, and it's ridiculous. And at the end, one of the fairies comes to the audience and is just like, hey, if you didn't like this, you were asleep. <laughs> and if you did, mm. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Mm-hmm. We liked playing mm-hmm. this play. If, if we shadows have offended. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant ending to any story. Uh, it's a great play in that it's it's a really wonderful frothy comedy unto itself, but it's also a little bit of a satire because of that play within a play. They're trying to make fun of romantic tragedy, the kind that Shakespeare himself self would write in something like Romeo and Juliet, a play that I am not the fondest of. No. Um, I feel not, like didn't make either of our lists. No, and there are um, some well-respected versions of it too. Yeah, and I, I do feel like the 1968 Zeffirelli version is still kind of the standard of that work. I think it's a standard. Um, I actually don't think it's the best, but I do think it's a standard. Yeah, yeah. like like there hasn't been a better film version of that. Yeah, I, I could argue that, don't, but like it's don't definitely you, up there. Don't you dare fucking mention Boz Lerman to me. And uh, but I think that um, pregnant pause. <laughs> <laughs> don't you dare bring up that movie. <laughs> 
It's, Moving on. Mm-hmm. Look, it was the 90s. There was a lot of MTV. We didn't know what we were doing. That's, okay, I love... <laughs> I love that that's like the 90s excuse for like, it was the 60s, we were all dropping acid, we didn't know what we were doing. It was the 90s, we were all watching MTV, we didn't know what we were doing. (laughs) the same excuse. Our our view was skewed, we we thought it was good at the time. That's going to be the 2010s someday. It's like, listen, it was the 2010s, no one knew how powerful Twitter was. Okay, (laughs) we were all just completely out of our minds. (laughs) But uh, because there's that play within a play in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is... uh, a really broad slapstick version turns out to be a slapstick version of a great romantic tragedy, Pyramus and Thisbe. Uh, and there's a lot of references to a lot of great romantic tragedies. And I think Shakespeare is saying romantic tragedies are such, they're such a stupid idea. They're kind of, this idea kind of that ridiculous. These, these people will fall in love and their love is so grand that they just kill themselves. Like how, what stupid author would write that? Oh wait, I did shit. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, let's make fun of that a little. I'm surprised mm-hmm. he didn't name check Romeo and Juliet. Well, uh, I don't think he'd written in, it yet. Well, I think Pyramus and Thisbe actually predates Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet was 92. And, Look this um, up. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, the, this version of Midsummer Night's Dream from 1935, directed by Max Reinhardt. Excuse me, Romeo and Juliet was 94, and Midsummer Night's Dream was 96. So, oh, uh, I was wrong. Yeah. Fair enough. So he was making fun of Romeo and Juliet. Fair enough. A, a little bit. That, totally fine. I just got my dates mixed up. Mm-hmm. Um, this is directed by Max Reinhardt and William Daterly. It has a wonderful wonderful cast including mickey rooney as puck and this is back when he's mickey like rooney 10, was, yeah. he's like a child mm-hmm. actor he's a little kid in this and he is an amazing shakespearean actor easily the best puck i have ever seen in anything <laughs> and that includes that robert sean leonard cameo in dead poet society uh, i like that one but anyway uh we got james cagney as bottom the weaver not generally considered a classical actor he's amazing and hilarious mm-hmm. But one of the things that Olivia de Havilland is one of the lovers. It's so good. And and one of the most wonderful things about this movie is that this is 1935. Hmm. The visual effects are still amazing. Like you you won't even you won't know how they do some of this like, stuff. Because you realize, like, wait a minute, they didn't have access to ninety-eight percent of the stuff we have now to do visual effects. <laughs> they had to do a lot of this in camera or with very simple animation or with not even animatronics, just puppetry. Hmm. And it's uncanny, not just how good it looks, but how beautifully painted everything looks. Everything looks like this gorgeous new kind of work of art that just seems to be emanating from the film strips. Mm-hmm. The, the The dance of the fairies in the in the woods is just absolutely instantly iconic. If you've never seen it, you will see it and go, "Holy shit." Mm-hmm. And the uh, uh, Reinhardt and Dieterle, they have this like clear reverence for how beautiful cinema can be, and how cinema has the capacity to turn *Midsummer Night's Dream* and all of these ideas, which are just sort of like, oh, we'll just flounce about in fairy wings, and we'll have a potion here, and they will have some glitter or whatever. And I know people have tried harder than that, but you know what I mean. Like you're limited <laughs> by what you can do on the stage. All of a sudden, there are no limits. And if Shakespeare put magic in something, we can make it truly magical. Yeah. And as incredible and reverent and gorgeous as all of that is, it's fucking funny. <laughs> it's really fucking it, it, funny. It remembers that it's a comedy. This is a big criticism I had with uh, Joss Whedon's rendition of Much Ado About Nothing mm-hmm. that he did, like, like to take a break after his big Avengers movies. Like, yeah. I'm just going to do something in my house. 
invite some friends over and we're going to do mm-hmm. much ado about nothing. And there is not a funny scene in that movie. Oh, I like, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this right now. I think Amy Acker has some funny moments. A- Amy Acker is Beatrice and she's good. Yeah. I think Benedict was terrible. I didn't um, think he was terrible. I, I kind of like, like Alexis Dennis. Like, uh, Fran Kranz is one of the few actors who like really can speak Shakespearean dialogue with a little bit of knowledge. He's All the other at. characters are kind of reciting it. Um, Nathan Fillion plays Dogberry and like he doesn't know what to do with that material I, at I, all. I, I think that actually kind of befits the character in a weird way, so I, that doesn't bother me the way it bothers well, just, there's, you. There's but... so much humor in the actual dialogue that he's clearly missing. Like he's just sort of reading something <laughs> off of a page and not not speaking it correctly. I, I'm, I'm not going to fight you too yeah. hard on it. It's it's definitely not great, it's but suppo- I, like, I like it a little bit more than you do. It's supposed to be really funny and bright and broad and 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 sparkling the way Brana did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I said, Brana ruined that pl- the play for me forever. Uh. Yeah, but you're right. I think this 1935 version of A Midsummer Night's Dream mm. understands that this is not just a fanciful thing, not just poetry, but a comedy. What did you think of the 99 version from Michael Hoffman, the one with Michelle Pfeiffer, mm. Rupert Everett, Kevin Klein, Stanley I, Tucci? I appreciate the effort. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel too. <laughs> like they they got uh, some good comedy moments. I understand. Mm. Uh, I like the sort of the aesthetic they were going for. The fairies are kind of these dirty wood nymphs. They're a little bit more like trolls in that movie. Yeah, I actually like, I do like the Uh, overall aesthetic of that film. I think it's a good looking movie. But I I wish we could have seen more of it. It's not brightly lit. It's kind of a a little bit dark and muddy. Oh God, Uh, speaking of dark and... I think you just lose the comedy in it. Yeah, and it's it's got a good cast, but yeah, they're not allowed to sort of breathe life into the dialogue. Yeah, it's just not, it's just Um, not very... uh, Like Michelle Pfeiffer was the best part. Kevin Klein is in that movie. Stanley Tucci and Michelle Pfeiffer is the one who who walks out of that. Well, let's, let's give Michelle Pfeiffer her due. She's a very talented She's a very talented like yeah. when it's supposed to be a huge ensemble, there shouldn't be only one standout. Yeah, it's the yeah. opposite of Keanu Reeves. <laughs> there you go. All right, moving on. You were saying you said uh, uh, speaking of uh, oh, uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream. Also, uh, an adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream is one of the worst adaptations I've ever seen. As well, um, yeah. the BBC rendition oh, no. from I think it was from the seventies or eighties. It was, it was actually directed by the same one who did the same director who did that uh, awful Coriolanus, where uh, they tried to make oh. everything every frame look like a painting, but they went for a certain aesthetic from a Shakespearean painting where everything was really kind of dim. As such, it's not a well lit uh, rendition. The sets are really stark. There's a lot of cold light and pits of mud. Everything is really kind of horrible. And imagine. If Puck was the nightmare from the painting The Nightmare, there's actually a scene oh. where, where Puck is crouching on somebody's chest, like That's breathing creepy. life out of their body. That's really creepy. And at the end of the play, it's you know, all the lovers are going back to their rooms to fuck. Uh, everybody's <laughs> been married. Everything's back to normal. And the fairies come in and says, oh, everybody's in love. Everybody's fucking. Let's have a, a, a fairy orgy as well. So it's just a big fairy orgy. Okay. And that's the way the play goes out. There's actually and, uh, a, imagine sorry, imagine instead of like a, a cheery fairy orgy and a celebration of marriage and sex, they just trash the joints. They just like knock <laughs> tables over and smash glasses. It's like, what the hell are you thinking? Like, I need to look this, up the director. This is name. a movie that's really. This is a story that's really easy to screw up yeah. just because well, it's um, complicated. It's it's actually surprisingly complicated, mm-hmm. and it's easy to get the tone way off too because of. Everything that's going on. And uh, there's actually a really bad version. And the reason I'm only bringing this up, I wouldn't normally highlight like a bad movie that's a very particular point to make. Mm. Uh, there was a version from 2018 that was set in Hollywood. 
Oh, yeah. today. I saw that one. Yeah, also had, with Frank Grant. Yeah, that's why I brought it up. Mm-hmm. Frank Grant is also the best part of that movie. He plays <laughs> Bottom the Weaver, and he's the actor who is going to be in a college student film of Pyramus and Thisbe. Hmm. And of course, they're shooting in like Griffith Park when everyone like What's pulls this? their cars off to the side of the road, mm-hmm. and it's like they all just drop acid and do crazy shit in the woods. And I kept expecting it to turn into a horror movie. And alas, the only horror was this is a bad adaptation of Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. Well, you said you were going to look up the director. His name is Elijah Moshinsky. Okay. He did several of those uh, BBC productions, and they're all bad. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> well, and that was uh, that. Let's just let's just call, split the difference and say let's call that my number one. All right. And we'll say Whitney's number one was mm. Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, Hamlet because from... Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet is maybe the ultimate Shakespeare movie. Whether it's the best, we might disagree. But I think on some level, this is the Shakespeare movie by design, and it's almost amazing that Branagh got away with it. Branagh, I mean, Hamlet is maybe Shakespeare's most celebrated play. Mm-hmm. It's the it's one, most quoted. It's, it's his most quoted. It's often called his best by scholars. Books and books and books have been written about it by people way more intelligent than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we could talk all night about Hamlet and still not even scratch the surface mm-hmm. as, as to what's going we, on in this. We've play. toyed with like whole projects based on literally nothing but Hamlet. Nothing but Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, Kenneth Branagh had played Hamlet. He's said in interviews, Hamlet is the hoop through which every actor must eventually jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you're playing Hamlet, the character, or just are in a production, it is this weird. Uh, it's it's like the very fabric of theater for someone like uh, Kenneth mm-hmm. Branagh. And so he said, "I want to make a film version, but if I'm going to make a film version of Hamlet, I'm going to do it right." And he he fought for this, and I'm surprised he did it. He got the entire text of the play into yeah. the film now, which th- is re- which is which never happens in film. Never happens on the stage. Yeah, like, this they, is they, like they cut scenes out. They for like pacing's sake, they don't want audiences to, to be in the seat for four and a half hours, which the, these plays can often there, take. There are extraneous characters who you can totally remove mm-hmm. from Hamlet, and you'd never know they were gone. Mm-hmm. Like Gerard Depardieu plays a character in Ronaldo. Ronaldo, he doesn't need to be in uh, the play. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it has three li- three lines, and one of them is "My Lord." That would dishonor him. Yeah, like that's uh, yeah. it's it's absurd. But he want he puts the entire text in here, and almost every adaptation I've ever seen is very judicious about cutting things out of Hamlet because, again, movies tend to be uh, 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 they have they focus on momentum. Hmm. There's an inciting incident, and everything falls out of it. Shakespeare doesn't necessarily do that. In fact, the only Shakespeare play I can think of. That never meanders in any meaningful way mm-hmm. is Othello. And I would actually argue that in many respects, I think Othello is his best play. I've never, like, Oliver Parker's Othello is very, very good. It's not top 10, but it's very, very good. Mm-hmm. But we've never had, like, the ultimate Othello, I think. And Hamlet is just dramatically, from pacing perspectives, a bit of a mess. And so well, you cut out some of the stuff so that the plot guides you through. That's what every yeah, other the, uh, director seems to do. And Branagh wanted to leave it all in, come hell or high water, and just mm-hmm. enjoy the grandeur of it, even if it is a bit bloated because Shakespeare is bloated. Because, because it's Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, because it's huge. Say, it's, it's, it's not huge supposed to be Big speeches and po- poetry and gigantic... You know, kingdoms crumbling kind of stories. What I appreciate about uh, including the entire text is 
when it comes to time to sort of slim Hamlet down, people focus on the main characters. They focus on the Hamlet revenge story. Mm-hmm. Uh, they focus just on the relationship, essentially, between Hamlet and Claudius, more or less. And Ophelia, and, but yeah. And, yeah, no, no, and, Ophi- and, Ophi- yeah. and Ophelia and Gertrude. Yeah. Like, there, there's yeah. only a few key players. Yeah. And, uh, and you can remove almost everyone else, and the play still works. And it's still brilliant. Mm. But? Uh, but, in including the entire text, we actually have context for all of that drama. Yep. It's not just about this little tiny drama between these royal figures. It's about the fact that in not doing things correctly, the entire kingdom is going to fall. Yeah, if you focus only on the plot, Hamlet is a revenge story. If you leave in everything, it's a rich tapestry about an entire kingdom told in microcosm. Yeah. And Branagh's version has that. Another thing Branagh's version has is that you, when you take out, when you look at all of these individual scenes that Shakespeare put in the play, many of which are often cut out, you realize that a lot of them are behave very, very differently. Mm. There are scenes that are horrific. There are scenes that are very funny. There are scenes that are truly romantic. There are scenes that are genuinely depressing. And there are scenes that are full of intrigue. There are scenes that are just sort of fucking around. Mm. Every kind of movie is in Hamlet. And Branna takes this as an opportunity to put every kind of movie in this. And he makes these giant courtroom epics or, or uh, 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 king, you know, majestic royal epics. And he also has horror scenes in it. It ends in one of the great movie sword fights, like <laughs> truly classic Errol mm. Flynn nonsense. Like Hamlet no, flings no a sword across a fucking hallway like it's a bullet. And, and pins somebody to the, to the throne. It's, it's not subtle at all. Gorgeous. Mm. Like it's so huge. Mm. Because he's, again, he's making the ultimate Shakespeare movie, which in a way is kind of the ultimate movie. Mm. Everything you could want is in this film. Every actor you could want is in this film. Robin Williams is in this film for four fucking lines. At the end, when things are wrapping up. And everything is like yeah. all the tension is like moving on. He comes in to be the last minute comic relief. The, the character yeah, Osric is the character. He's just there to deliver a message, and Shakespeare and, kept him around for a little bit of comic business. Why? Yeah. I actually don't know. We're no, wrapping things up. Everyone's about to get murdered. Well, everything, every everybody's about to get murdered. Everything's been like really, really sad. We realize that we've been in this theater for three and a half hours at this point. <laughs> That's after the intermission, so we're... uh, Throwing Robin Williams. We need a little bit of levity at that moment. Um, uh, Richard Attenborough plays the English ambassador. Remember that memorable character. Literally Uh, pops in in the last minute. And... (laughs) It's fucking minute. And he, he walks in with a cane and it looks like uh, Richard Attenborough is lost on the way to somewhere. Like he's looking for Jurassic like, Park. Like, what is going... Oh. Oh, it's... Um, oh, I remember Hamlet. Hang on. Oh, Hamlet. Uh, and and Brandon's like, you're, you're the English ambassador. Oh, I know that part. Uh, Rosencrantz and, and Gilson are dead. Are dead. Well, well done. Bye, job, bye. <laughs> Thank you. Do I get paid for this? Sure, here's a check. Here's a, yeah. a paper airplane. Shh. Yeah, you got like mm. Billy Crystal as the grave digger. You've got Kate Winslet mm. when she was actually still pretty new as an actor. I think she'd already done Sense and Sensibility, mm. like killing it as Ophelia, like just perfect mm. casting. Um, you got Derek Jacobi as Claudius. You got mm. um, um, oh, it's so good. 
Julia, Julia Christie is Gertrude. Amazing. Um, Production design is astounding. The score is grand. Mm. Every performance. You got Charlton Heston as the player king. (laughs) This was not peak Heston years. And he's great. But we also got a few of like Brana's regulars, like like Brian Blessed is back there. He's yeah. the ghost of Hamlet's father. Yeah, the only man who can be loud while whispering. List, <laughs> uh, yeah. list, list. Uh, then then we have like Richard Breers. He's Polonius. Um, who who's the actor who plays Laertes? Oh, he's, he's, he's he was a, also he's a, Much Ado. Um, hang on, hang uh, on. Um, I don't think he was Much Ado, but he was in. Uh, no, he was Much Ado. He was uh, uh, Once It's Dad. No, Richard Beers was. I'm talking about the the character played Laertes. Uh, oh, Laertes. I thought yeah, I was, I, I was, Laertes um, is his son. My bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, oh, Polonius' son, Laertes. Um, damn he, it! I can picture he was also him too. in In the Bleak Midwinter. Uh, he's so he's he okay, with Brian before. Hang, hang on. Hang on. Uh, I forgot. The, oh, gosh, I forgot his name. It's, it's, it's such a yeah. no, no, shame I'm on me. But um, yeah, all, all of everybody is just sort of perfectly cast. There's mm. not a not a Keanu Reeves in Michael the bunch. Maloney. Michael Maloney. Michael Maloney. That's a great actor. Great yeah, actor. No, but yeah, not not a Keanu yeah. in the bunch. They're just everybody is really nailing it. And then he even he even pads it out uh, by kind of expanding it. Uh, there's a whole speech that the player king gives. Yeah. Which is uh, the story of the death of Priam. Oh yeah. Uh, Priam isn't a character in Hamlet, but Kenneth Branagh is going to get John Gielgud to play him. <laughs> Yeah, we have, like, while the, the player king is giving his speech, we cut to a uh, dramatization of mm. the death of Priam, and John Gilgood gets to give a few lines, and uh, and Judy Dench plays Priam's wife, and she screams. That's her whole role. <laughs> it's beautiful how big and expansive. Um, I remember it's 70 millimeter. He shot it in 70 millimeter. I think it was maybe... Like the last up until the Hateful Eight that was shot on that format, like, and only in that format. Only like in other that films format. have shot like bits in that format, mm. but like yeah, for for decades this was the last yeah. one to do only seventy so he, millimeter. He and it's, to, to I, saw this, I saw this in a theater. I'm so glad I did. It was gigantic. Yeah, I, I insisted my dad take me, yeah. so yeah, I got to see it in the theater as well. Oh. Uh, and I got a, I got a, a sc- I got a, like a, a press screener of it around. Uh, a, oh, God awards time so i watched the hell out of this like two tape vhs thing. i would i would kill like if we ever had our own film festival mm. like you know like roger ebert's like forgotten film festival mm. like that oh my god just to be able to just throw this on the big screen get a 70 again. millimeter of this that's hamlet like what's your double feature for tonight it's hamlet. just hamlet all right <laughs> just the first half of hamlet and the second half of hamlet. <laughs> that's double feature. trust me you get like eight movies yeah. in this damn thing uh, i i i know it's poor form to quote other critics but roger ebert did put it very well he says uh the actors were they looked relieved as if they had some finally had something important to say because Hamlet is an important play. It's yeah. afflict, uh, affected, afflicted, affected uh, Western consciousness in a gigantic way. A, mm-hmm. uh, literary critic Harold Bloom called it a poem unlimited. Yeah. That there's not a single human philosophy that isn't somewhere in Hamlet hiding. Uh I'm not sure if I'm quite as high on it as Harold Bloom was. I feel like uh, that's a mild exaggeration, mm. but it's so all-encompassing. And it captures so much of the human experience and so much of what is discussed and considered in Hamlet relates to just about anything. And I think maybe not every philosophy is encapsulated in Hamlet, Mm. but there is a line in Hamlet for just about any situation. Yeah, pretty much. And even if they're misquoted, I remember... Mm. um, that's the question. That I, is the question. No, no, no. It's the, the one. That, well, maybe not misquoted, but misinterpreted. I think. I feel like um, one of the most uh, uh, incorrectly quoted 
lines in Shakespeare is this above all to thine own self be true Mm -hmm. which sounds great in a vacuum until you actually read the play or see the play and you realize that it's a joke because that comes at the end of an incredibly long speech in which Laertes' father tells him because he's going to leave the castle and make his own way he gives him an incredibly long speech telling him exactly how to live his life neither a borrower nor a lender don't don't do this but always do this Mm -hmm. don't do this always do this and it goes on like that for stanzas and then after telling him, lit, micromanaging literally every part of his existence is, from but, birth to but, death. But this above all, this above all else, to thine own self be true. Like, yes, yeah, like be your own person, but follow everything I've ever said mm. for your entire life. It's a joke. Mm. It's good advice. But in the context of the play, it's a joke. Yeah, and it's Pol- a hilarious joke. Polonius is, is a comic character. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually played a little bit more straight. In fact, that's something uh, kind of Brana doesn't really roll with. He doesn't reinterpret the characters. He doesn't he's have a classicist to. He's, in a lot yeah, of ways, he's yeah, he's doing the, uh, kind of a more classical version. Even though he's casting modern actors, he's mm-hmm. doing a lot of like modern editing techniques. He typically does uh, the version. He's of doing the play. a lo- well, yeah, he's unless like, he's doing Love's Labor's Lost, which kind of sucks. But uh, there's bits in that movie I really like. He, Love's Labor's Lost is he took a minor like Shakespearean rom com kind of thing about mistaken identities and blah mm-hmm. people who vowed never to fall in love. Whatever. It's not a great play. Uh, but put, like American musical standards from the 30s. Yeah, the he decided to yeah. throw in some Cole Porter numbers, and it's it's cute on the surface, like it's kind of whimsical in its conception, but it's also very very cheap, and hmm. not all of the actors are really game for it. But when it's good, there's a couple of really really good bits in it that I really oh, really okay. like. Not amazing. There's a couple I, of really good bits in it. I do think Tim, it's worth watching. Timothy Spall is fun. In that Timothy Spall is he, very very fun yeah. in that movie. I think the the yeah. end. Uh, where it's all them going off to like World War Two and their mm. love story isn't ended and uh, uh, Love's Labor's it, Lost by the way the, the play never ends Love's Labor's Lost <laughs> it just it just sort of stops short it's like oh yeah. we're finally in love oh bye we gotta go to war how's that gonna resolve I don't know bye that's the end of the play <laughs> but like they, they, I think that's the part of it that's actually kind of sweet is mm. that it's basically just sort of about the, the, the end the war interrupts well it's, it's about you know we had all of these like lighthearted movies in the mm. 1930s and then everything got really serious again mm. and those kind of blithe you know romantic musical comedy reviews where everything is just sort of loosely connected and fun um, kind of fell by the wayside and it's kind of about like sort of the death of that too and again it's too cheap. The cast isn't always great, but I like that one. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, Hamlet, I think, is the ultimate Shakespeare movie, as is Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream 1935. From basically, they're tied. Um, do you have any runners-up you want to talk about? Um, just, just a few weird ones I'd like to recommend. Yeah. I, like I said, I think Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet is the standard uh, mm-hmm. of that work. Uh, you've probably watched it in school. Yeah. Uh, I, I think so many people have watched it in school, it's kind of hard to think of Romeo and Juliet as anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where... Um, only a few people have tried ever since to redo a film version of Romeo and Juliet. At the very least, like a direct version. Yeah. Obviously, like uh, uh, people have well, been like, riffing on it. It's like ever Romeo since, must like... die, but I'm not sure how much I count that one. <laughs> I don't think that one counts. Um, but yeah, I, I did have Richard Longridge, Richard the Third on mm-hmm. mine. Um, I did want to recommend uh, those BBC productions. I know they're TV productions, but mm, uh, there are fine. some that they do really, really well. Uh, and I recommend the York Tetrad, that is uh, Henry the Sixth Parts 1, 2, and 3, and Richard the Third. They're all done by the same director. Mm. They do this uh, really similar kind of uh, Henry V approach, where 
they start on like really fakey sets, riding like fake horses and doing everything really theatrically. But as the kingdom falls apart, things get more real. Everything gets muddier and dirtier. Real horses start to to show up, and I think they even shoot a few scenes on on location. Mm. Uh, so it, it yeah, it kind of like expand as the world deteriorates, it expands out into the real world. It's not this sort of fanciful drama any longer. Mm, okay. So that's those are some really good productions. You can I don't, I'm not sure if you can find those BBC productions like online anywhere. Surely you can. I hope so. Yeah. Um, um, anything else? I was really tempted to put Strange Brew on my list. I, you know, Strange Brew, uh, I rewatched it. I hadn't mm. seen it since I was a kid. Doesn't hold up that great for me. It, it's there's good the opening is amazing, mm. but actually the worst parts are the Hamlet parts. Oh, you think so? I think uh, so. It's a uh, it's Strange Brew was uh, Doug and Bob McKenzie. They're characters from a SCTV. SCTV, yeah. which is a very popular and influential sketch comedy show that sadly doesn't get talked about anymore. But it gave us many of our more enduring comedy actors mm-hmm. to this day. And uh, they were just these two lovable drunks that had their well, they loved uh, beer and they loved hockey and they had their own like basic cable show. I actually learned about the origin of Bob and Doug McKenzie recently, and we're off topic here, but whatever. What, what the hell? Um. SCTV uh, was partly funded by the government of Canada because Canada funds their entertainment. Yeah. And uh, they they were looking at the episodes and saying, what can you do that's more Canadian? <laughs> and, uh, and, and Rick Moranis like, Moran said, well, what do you want us to do? Like put on toques and drink beers and say, hey, how, how's it going? Eh? It's like, no, but why don't we just do that? <laughs> so they, they he and Dave Thomas just sort of put on those outfits, created these characters and just sort of improvised for a little yeah. bit. And that was their... Canadian content. They're just lovable and dudes somehow, who love hockey and beer. That's it. And and it, it is incredibly Canadian, and yet somehow like worldwide, those characters caught on. Yeah, they, they they're very very funny. Uh, and, and they when they it came time for them to make a movie, weirdly, it's a Hamlet adaptation where Bob and Doug McKenzie are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah, they uh, there's this whole wonderful opening act in which they decided to make their own movie, and we're watching the first Bob and Doug movie. Yeah. <laughs> but the movie is really cheap, and then it breaks, and there's a riot years and after every, World War Four. Yeah, yeah, it's. it's the opening of the movie is absolutely comic genius. It's one of the best openings of any comedy ever. Like, it's that and uh, Super Troopers 2 are, like, maybe two of the funniest <laughs> openings to a comedy that isn't a great comedy I've ever seen in my whole life. Uh, uh, the, and then the dead body flipping off the camera <laughs> from Super Troopers it's 2. It's so amazing. But, uh, uh, but then after that, it just sort of settles in and they become Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And it's about the... Um, um, Bad guy has taken over a brewery mm-hmm. along with Elf. a mad scientist played by Max Wancito. <laughs> they they were amazed they got Max Wancito too, yeah. but he's funny in it. Yeah. But um, yeah, all of the Hamlet stuff is just sort of fine. It actually takes itself a little too seriously for me because when it's just goofy and weird and silly, it's a it's a delight. Okay. So it's a mixed bag. It didn't make my top ten, mm-hmm. but it's it's funny. Any, I'm sorry. Anything else? Um, I mean, there's just so many. Uh, and and Tre- Trevor Nunn's Twelfth Night from the '90s is also wonderful. That was you know? the first on my runners up. It's okay. a it's a very very it's a straightforward adaptation of the play, but everyone's really wonderful in it. Um, let's see, Where's the Guy's Skeleton Dead was on mine. Uh, Julius Caesar from 1953 is a very respectable adaptation. You know what? I haven't seen it. Oh yeah, so. Marlon Brando is Mark Antony. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's very good. It's very mm-hmm. good. Um, it's maybe it's so straightforward that it kind of just doesn't stand out the way the others do. But mm-hmm. if you just want to see a good adaptation of Julius Caesar, it's excellent. Uh, let's see. Uh, Orson Welles' Macbeth I like more than uh, mm-hmm. than you did. Uh, Oliver Parker's Othello is very respectable as well. 
Um, Good, but better acting than I think about yeah. the film. But yeah, uh, West Side Story is oh, well, yeah, it's West a big Story. movie. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of West Side Story, and honestly, mm. the stuff I like about it isn't the Romeo and Juliet stuff. It's the it's dancing, the cho- it's yeah. the choreography, it's, George, it's, George it's the cinematography, yeah. it's the presentation more than anything else. Because I don't know. Let's be honest here. Romeo and Juliet is a little overwrought, which is one of the reasons why. On my runners-up, I am actually putting Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet, and here's why. Here's why. Here's why. There's a reason for this. I I agree with you, Mm. and that this is maybe the most 90s movies to ever 90s. (laughs) Like, it's right up there. I think this was on our list when we did an Iron List about the most 90s movies ever. Um, I think Romeo plus Juliet may be the only major adaptation of Romeo and Juliet proper Mm. to acknowledge this is all very immature. Because I think that, Zeffirelli's that's, that's is the a tragic issue I Roman. have with the with the play. No productions that, point out that aspect. I, but I it. think I think that I think Zeffirelli takes it way too seriously. They can kick or take it whoa way too seriously. Mm-hmm. I think West Side Story is so sincere that it ends up just feeling overwrought. And I feel that by couching Romeo and Juliet, and I'm sure this is unintentional, but this is how it plays now. By couching Romeo and Juliet within these incredibly, like, what it teens into in the 90s kind of thing, the movie ends up feeling so childish <laughs> and so <laughs> immature about its presentation of love and violence and mm. uh, uh, teen romance kind that of- it ends up actually kind of being the most appropriate Romeo and Juliet because... Mm. It's a story about dumb kids who made bad decisions. Yeah. I was always, always kind of hoping that someone like Harmony Corrine would take mm. care of Romeo and Juliet at one point. Just show them as these these mm. venal idiots. Yeah. Um, speaking of the, mm. that, that version, Tromeo mm. and Juliet is surprisingly entertaining. Absolutely, yes. It's lurid and stupid, but the good outweighs the bad. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's disgusting. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is really there's gross. A, there's a penis monster. There's a penis monster, and there's a twist uh, at the end, which is just really disgusting really, as well. Really twisted. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's the uh, the and there's some Shakespearean language throughout, but then it's like also it's just like thrown together masturbation jokes and people getting their heads cut off. That's and the stuff. one that James Gunn wrote. Isn't James it? Gunn wrote it. Yeah, he wrote it. Uh, he, he wrote it. He was just working at Troma, and they said, "Hey, we need a script. Can you do it?" And James was like, "Sure." And then, and like a week or two later, he came back with 120 pages, and Lloyd Kaufman, who directed the film, mm-hmm. said, what "The hell is this? Like, it's a script. Why is it so long?" Well, this is trauma. <laughs> like James was like, I don't know. I read the screenplays are 120 pages. Not the way I make. I make it. Make this 40. <laughs> so he cut it all the hell down. Love. Uh, there, there's a uh, a really wonderful sign that they hang around the set of every trauma production. Mm-hmm. It says uh, two, like two steps to make two steps two rules to follow. Rule one: stay safe. And then very very small. Rule two: make a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um. It's fun. It's it's sleazy and whatever. Uh, the Lion King, the original version, is a very good. If you're going to do a no, Disney you... version of Hamlet, it's as good as that could possibly be. Yeah. Uh, and I still haven't seen that version. And maybe. there's a couple of movies that are heavily like influenced by Shakespeare, where Shakespeare is really important to it without actually being a Shakespeare movie. Um, I'm not actually talking about Shakespeare in Love, which I like fine. It's okay. It's a, it's a nice little production. It's mm. a funny comedy full of great in jokes by Tom Stoppard. Yeah, you're talking about anonymous, of, right? Yeah, no, no. I'm actually <laughs> no. I mean, this, this isn't even literally about like Shakespeare himself. Right. It's that, that's worth an honorable mention. But um, Renaissance Man with Danny DeVito oh. is a very sweet film. Okay. Uh, Danny DeVito plays a guy who uh, he's like a big 
whatever businessman or whatever he loses his job and the only job he can get is like teaching like an extension course at an army base for like cadets who didn't finish their like higher education or whatever Hmm. and he just he's not taking it seriously the kids aren't taking it seriously finally he just says fuck it everyone read today just whatever you've got and they're like reading comic books or magazines or whatever and he's reading hamlet and they're like what's that and he's like oh you wouldn't be interested in this like well why would i interested in it oh you know it's got stuff like murder and incest and ghosts and they're like whoa what's this <laughs> and he ends up teaching a bunch of like burnouts hamlet Mm-mm. and they end up really connecting with it in a meaningful way and yeah this sounds like a cliche thing and it kind of is it's just really good mm. it's a really good film it's worth a shout out and another one totally different thing but it's another one that's about like shakespeare just as an entity mm. theater of blood Theater of Blood. With Vincent Price. You ever seen it? Um, maybe. Which one? Vincent Price. Vincent Price. I saw so many of those. They have such similar titles. Theater of Blood is an amazing horror movie. Vincent Price plays a Shakespearean actor uh, who is brutalized by the critics and decides to brutalize the... I have not seen this This movie's great. Okay. He plays uh, 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 an actor who was a Shakespearean actor and he was a ham Mm. by by any stretch. Uh, and uh, he decides to, since the critics were so mean to him, he's going to be mean to the critics. And so he and his daughter, played by Diana Rigg, oh, late, which is late a, great Diana Rigg, amazing yeah. actor all times, uh, they go off on a revenge spree and they start killing critics in the yes. means in, in the various ways that Shakespeare killed his characters. So, like, they do a Titus Andronicus pie. They do all kinds of horrible things. And it's, it, on one hand... Just just st- stick with Titus Andronicus and you're good. You're good. But he did, did a whole... I think he did, like, the Pound of Flesh as well. Like, it's all all a ton of fun. And on one hand, it's this kind of campy, crazy, 1973 just slasher movie with a Shakespearean bent. But it's also kind of a work of criticism as well. Because if you look at all the people who, like, take... Shakespeare super seriously and take mm-hmm. theater really seriously and say that oh you can't mess with the bard you cannot mm-hmm. you know sully him or bring him down and you need to remember like theater of blood shows you Shakespeare was blood crazy <laughs> Shakespeare was a murderer Shakespeare was just absolutely sleazy and populist and mm-hmm. sexy and violent and crazy the blood is compulsory so theater of blood is wonderful and it doesn't get enough. It doesn't get talked about very much anymore. And it's absolutely worth seeking out. And it's a fun adjunct to any sort of Shakespearean film education. So that's my last uh, runners up. There's a lot of other good ones out there. I'm sure you can think of them. There you go. Um, like Nomeo and Juliet. You know, it's not very good. Or did you see that the animated Romeo and Juliet where there were seals? And it was called Sealed with a Kiss. I forgot that existed. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I actually forgot about until uh, we were doing research for this was there was a short series of like half hour animated Shakespeare adaptations from the BBC that I oh, saw yeah, a lot yeah. when I was a kid. Mm. The one I remember very distinctly was there was a stop motion taming of the shrew, which is a very problematic play. And there's no, even <laughs> 10 Things I Hate About You, you as just... charming as it is. Has problems. You can just say it's sexist. It's, it's fine. Pretty uh, sexist. And Ten Things Anime was probably the best version of that I've mm. seen in a movie. But even at the end, Heath Ledger's like, "Listen, I, I know I broke your heart, and her entire relationship is based on lies. But I did buy you this guitar." Mm. And she's like, "Oh, okay." Musical uh, number. There was, what? Uh, <laughs> there's a production in San Diego where uh, 
there's a speech at the end of The Taming of the Shrew where Kate has essentially said, I'm, I'm now tamed and I understand the importance of listening to your man. And it's, yeah, it's, it's like the, so the most gross. sexist thing. Uh, but the production they had, um, it took place in the Old West. And uh, <laughs> that speech was given while she was holding a gun on everyone. She nice. like drew Petruchio's gun and just started pointing it at everybody and gave that final speech completely ironically. So that's a good way to take care of that play. Oh, I forgot. There's one thing I wanted to mention that isn't a movie. Uh, it is... Uh, Moonlighting season three episode seven. It's called Atomic Shakespeare. Oh no! They did an adaptation of Taming of the Shrew, but it's got ninjas. <laughs> it's amazing. It's actually really funny. They did a funny job. They, they, there's no explanation for it. Hmm. Just all of a sudden, this is a Shakespeare episode. Yeah, but it's got ninjas and stuff, and it's funny and it's silly, and I liked it. I did a bit of research for this. I was trying to like make sure there wasn't like a weird one that I missed, and I found a clip online, and I posted this on Twitter like earlier like probably like a day or two ago now depending on when you're listening to this podcast uh but you can look google it really easily the beatles did pyramus and thisby on live television once what there was a live british tv series in which paul mccartney plays bottom the weaver okay george harrison plays the man in the moon mm. ringo Starr plays the lion and john lennon plays thisby and they're charming as hell. <laughs> it's like a seven-minute yeah. skit, and it's just them being funny, kind of doing the language, kind of not, kind of talking to the audience, kind of breaking character and laughing at each other. They're so charming. Who knew that the Beatles were so charming? Uh, everybody. Everybody on the planet. They were literally <laughs> bigger than Jesus. But uh, anyway, that's a fun thing if you want to seek right. that out. I'm glad, I, I'm glad I discovered it and I want to raise awareness mm. because somehow I'm a big fan of Shakespeare and I'm a big fan of the Beatles and I'd never heard about that until mm. today. So, the, um, the movie Hamlet 2 is only good because of Rock Me Sexy Jesus. <laughs> I've actually never seen Hamlet 2. Oh, you haven't? Who plays the teacher in Hamlet 2 again? It's Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan. Okay, yeah. that's cool. All right. I heard yeah. it was cute. It's it's just cute. Okay, but there's there's a really just spot on musical number called "Rock Me, Sexy Jesus," which oh, is perfect. What was that Yahoo Serious movie where he ended up like making a version of Hamlet? Oh, Yahoo Serious is Hamlet. Yeah, yeah. There was a Yahoo Serious movie. Oh God damn it! All the all the vowel keys on my we, on my computer broke again. We as a culture said no to Yahoo Serious. Yeah, Yahoo Serious was a, an Australian comedian. He was in a few uh, a few movies. He was a, mm-hmm. a, a flash in the pan back in yeah. the late 80s. Young Einstein is is pretty clever and inventive, and I like mm-hmm. it a lot. Uh, but there was a movie he did called Reckless Kelly. Oh, I haven't seen Reckless. There's the Hamlet aspect to Reckless Kelly. Yeah, like he uh, uh, he's um, yeah, he plays like a version of Ned Kelly, the, the famous mm-hmm. outlaw. And uh, when he finds out he can't like rob banks very well, uh, he ends up making movies. <laughs> And he's making some movie where he's like some kind of like outlaw heartthrob. Mm. And then like the other lead is like really into Shakespeare. And so she throws in a Shakespeare line. And then the producer, they're like, well, that's not in the script. This is like, hey, I just looked at the Shakespeare guy. He died a long time ago. This stuff's public domain. We can use all of it. <laughs> and so they end up like making this like comical version of Hamlet that's full of like motorcycle studs oh, and guns. Funny. I remember finding it charming. It's no young young Einstein. Young Einstein is very, very cute. Reckless Kelly is fine. <laughs> That's about as far as I go. I never saw Mr. Accident. I have no idea if that one's good. No, oh, Nobody saw it. 
Okay. Mr. Accident. No, like it, it opened to empty theaters. <laughs> Yahoo Serious didn't even see a final, uh, final cut of it. And it was passed from, from like eight editors. So nobody's seen a, a full version of Mr. Accident. It's about it a plan exist. to market eggs laced with nicotine. That's okay. That's sold. the plot. <laughs> it's, it's on YouTube. I'm sure. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyway, so that's, and on Yahoo Serious, we end the Iron List. <laughs> Only at the critically acclaimed network. We can go skip straight from the bard into Yahoo Serious. One of these days, I would love it. I, this episode's too long. Probably shouldn't do it here. But I would love it if someone, I don't have the time, if someone could just list all of the movies and TV shows we randomly reference while we're trying to stay focused on other things. <laughs> because this is supposed to be a Shakespeare thing, and we ended up going everywhere. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of what we do. That's our. It's I'm, just, our I'm just curious how many it actually stick. is. Mm-hmm. That we explicitly reference besides mm-hmm. the actual movies on this list. I'd be very mm-hmm. curious. But anyway, that's the Iron List. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons who, of course, not only picked this episode, but are sponsoring this episode. This podcast and all of the other podcasts that we make would not be possible without our patrons. Uh, if you want to become a patron, if you're not already, go to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We'll have a new poll up for an Iron List for October pretty soon. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about what's going to be on that uh, that uh, that poll. Uh, but we also have polls that decide future episodes of Cancel Too Soon, the critically acclaimed, where you can just pick our streaming club movie every single week, etc., etc., etc. We have a ton of exclusive content. We have podcasts dedicated to Star Trek, Batman, Disney, the Academy Awards. We have a commentary track that we drop every single month. We have a ton of exclusive content over there, and we just want to say thank you to everybody uh, who who not only sponsors it but is enjoying it. Thank you. We we love getting your feedback, and yeah. we yeah, we hope you sure. enjoy what we do. Um, and uh, if you want to talk about this episode or anything else, you can always email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Let us know if there's a particularly good Shakespeare adaptation that you think we missed, or perhaps we're too unkind to. We might read your mm-hmm. email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, we also have a Twitter. We are at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. And um, mm-hmm. that's it for us. Mm-hmm. Parting is such sweet sorrow. The rest is silence. And also our outro music. 